Tonight, we are talking with Nick Mutton, uh, and we are talking about the origins and the biogeography of the Pythonidae. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really going to be a nerd out night tonight, as far as pythons go, uh, for sure, but um, it should be cool. I what think. Is, uh, is, this like, is this like Nick part, like, 12? I mean, 12. we totally lost count <laughs> how many times... We've dragged Nick onto the show. I mean, yeah, it's usually we at least get him on once a year. Um, once a season, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe absolutely. twice, depending on what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Do you, because uh, we're about a month and a half away from our five-year <clears throat> anniversary oh of Morelia Python Radio. What is yeah. the five-year anniversary? I'm gonna type this shit in. Go ahead, but. <laughs> Five years worth of this crap. I mean, uh, yay! <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah. weird, dude. Sure. Yeah, the show will definitely be about three hours, no doubt. <laughs> oh dear God! Yeah, just, uh, yeah. we well, got yeah, tons I mean, of them. If you guys, if you guys thought it wasn't going to be, you clearly have not listened to the other previous shows where Nick has been on. So come on, yeah, yeah. Uh, I consider Nick a good friend, as I know, as you do, Owen. So you know, yep. it's <laughs> it's like it's like chatting on the phone with your with your buddy. Uh, so, but um, I talked to Nick earlier, and we talked about some of the subjects that we want to talk about. So uh, it should be uh, should be a good show for sure. Um, personally, I'm having a bad week in herpticulture. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think. Okay, so everybody knows my story about as far as uh, Poison Ivy. Um, she ovulated, um, and right. when she ovulated, uh, I guess it was about two months ago, maybe three months ago. I can't remember at this point. Uh-huh. thought it was odd. Everything went as, as planned, and, you know, um, uh, just the last week, I guess, I noticed that it seemed really odd, her swelling, um, very different than anything that I've seen as far as an animal that's about to lay eggs. Um, uh-huh. So I scheduled and, a vet. Op- yep, go ahead. And she had been, she had been sick previously this year, correct? It's like, because wasn't she, you're were, were, were getting ready for yeah. the breeding season. She got yep. sick. You pulled her out of a whole breeding thing, and it looks like she ovulated and stuff took, even though you pulled her out of the whole breeding thing, right? Yeah. So she had one lockup, um, and I think Ugh. I think I've told this story uh, before, where she kind of uh, basically I think that it was a struggle for the heat and the IJ that I got from Mike Curtin is so big, Jesus Christ, He's a monster. Male yeah. I mean, it is. huge huge um way bigger than her so yeah i think that they fought for the hot spot and i think she lost so it's just you know paying attention to them whatever i pulled her out right away she did develop a little bit of an ri got her to the vet took care of her right away good as gold eating pounding food everything is good um 
I noticed that she had um, did, refused food, and that's when I thought maybe, you know, the swelling was an ovulation. Well, uh, like I said, I noticed that there was like – it was broke up into three sections, um, you know, like where – where these swellings were and it's just nothing I've seen with an animal that's about to lay eggs. So I took her to the vet, um, the vet did an x-ray and there was definitely some blockage. Um, she had blockage, um, in, in three different areas. Um, the stuff that was right by the vent, um, you know, he actually thought was a slug, we palpated it out. It turned out to be feces. And, you know, he was kind of shocked at that. Everything looked good, though. There was nothing like there was no blood, nothing like that. Anything, you know, the, of this, nothing that would make it seem like she was in bad shape other than the fact that she had this blockage. Um, mm-hmm. The x-rays even revealed that, you know, he couldn't tell whether or not there was eggs, if it was. Uh, feces, if it was a mix of both. So his guess was that it was a mix of both, um, which by the way, an x-ray uh, of a snake where you, that's pretty badass, man. You see like their skull and stuff. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, anyhow, I, mean, I have a x-ray from one of my carpets uh, somewhere, which was awesome when that whole thing happened. But yeah, it, x-rays are cool, but not when you're like, no. Peeking out over your snake, yeah. I no, mean, and, and you know, of all snakes in my collection, to to yeah, to have this issue, it was just like, oh my god. So, um, she's at the vet every, and and it wasn't like she was lethargic. Tongue was flicking good. She's moving around, no issues, no no wheezing, no mouth gaping, nothing, nothing. Everything that you know was just as normal. Um. So he gave her a shot of oxytocin and mm-hmm. calcium, and he told me mm-hmm. basically that um, if she did have eggs in her, uh, that he would much rather them uh, come out uh, on their own rather than him trying to palpate them out because they were a little bit higher up. Um, he did say that the other um, the other alternative was surgery, obviously, with wanting to breed yeah. her. Obviously, we didn't want to, be done. to, it, it would to do be it. Yeah. to do that option. Um, right. So, uh, you know, like I said, uh, everything was good. I took her home. So I, I wake up this morning. I go in. I look inside her cage, and she's mouth gaped. Uh, and it, it appeared that the uh, the blockage had moved down. Uh, quite considerably, mm-hmm. um, but I don't. I don't think she's going to make it. She don't look good at all. Uh, I told, I, I I followed up with him today, and uh, yeah, you know, he said there's really nothing that we can do at this point. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, it she, doesn't look good. So you know, she'll either pull out or she won't. I mean, it, and impactions are weird. I mean, I lost my high con male pyro. To, he was impacted, and I ended up working out a lot of the impaction, and he still ended up dying a few days later. Just uh, and and it looked like he was empty, but I don't know what may have been ruptured or hurt or whatever. And it was a big impaction, so um, they're 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 tricky. And I mean, I I lost my Jag Aurora to I thought she was egg bound, 
and she was impacted in egg bound. Like when I cut her open, it was a mix of shit and eggs all packed in there. Um, and, and sometimes it just is a difficult thing to deal with. Like we've said before, you know, these things aren't rocks. They're living animals. So shit can go wrong and it can go wrong pretty quickly on you. Yeah. You know, Nick's going to be coming on the show, but you know, I, I, he's kind of, he's kind of mentored me along the way uh, back in my mm-hmm. early days of not really knowing anything about, you know, breeding snakes and stuff. And I remember the one thing that he uh, he would always tell me is, you know, when you, when you amass a large collection of animals, you know, you're yeah. going to start to see, you know, animals are going to get sick and animals are going to die. And it's going to be animals that, you know, that <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, a, a super duper morph or an animal that's mm-hmm. irreplaceable, you know, it's going to happen. Luckily with her, I, I got a clutch out of her, her offspring are all, you know, doing well. And I still have the whole clutch held it all back. The, all um, of them. You have all of them. <laughs> For those people yeah. who were holding out hope that they could get a poison ivy baby, if she does indeed pass, you can go ahead and take those hopes and huck them out the window because not, Eric's not going to let any of them go if that happens. I mean, <laughs> yeah, none of them. Um, so, you know, um, uh, now I lost my train of thought. Anyway, um, sorry. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I have. Uh, I ha- I had those uh you know those holdbacks but um you know it was funny when we were at Carpet Fest uh, <laughs> Nick had made a joke uh something along the lines of uh you know trying to turn me away from the dark side of all the morph crossing and stuff and you know made the Star Wars reference that uh, there's still hope for me yeah. <laughs> like I'm yeah. the, like I'm Darth Vader or something Darth Vader, sitting on the yeah, fence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but uh I don't know, man. You know, if this is what I will say, if you have some Go carpet python that you, that 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 you have in your collection that is, you know, a, a, you know, it's a coastal and IJ or whatever, you know, at least try to get a clutch out of it before you start crossing it with jags and all this bullshit. <laughs> because right, luckily, I mean, you can't reverse that. You can't reverse the fact that, you know. It's if you breed a jag into it, it's never going to be like you can't keep dialing down the percentage. I think sometimes people think, well, if I keep breeding it to a, you know, to an IJ, eventually it's going to be a hundred percent IJ again. Eh, wrong. That, that, no, that never happens. <laughs> so what you know? Because correct me if I'm wrong. What you're getting at here is because before you got poison ivy, her original breeding before you got her was to a jag, correct? Yes. So if she so if she had passed without ever giving you a clutch, the only offspring that could link to this really really black IJ would already have coastal in it. So you'd never get yes. back to the pure IJ part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so yeah, I'm kind of I'm <laughs> I'm kind of bummed, and you know it really. I don't know. Like I said, I still, I have morphs in my collection. I like morphs and you know, you've been listening to me for the past probably month or so that I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of steering away from the whole crossing things up and trying to go more of the, you know, uh, refining the subspecies type of deal. Like I said, I, I you know, we were talking on our Bowens round table today 
And, you know, Keith had mentioned asking about, you know, differences of, uh, you know, what were our thoughts on crossing, um, you know, why, mm-hmm. why are some, some, like, where do you draw the line in the sand? Why are some things right, okay, right. but then other things are like, well, no, no, no. <laughs> I think they were talking about hybrids. And, and then I think I told you, I'm like, you can, I, I think my post in there was, you can ask Eric. I ran screaming for my first ever Jaglot that I saw. And you were like, yes, yes, he indeed, he did. So yes. it's like, and then, and then that led, of course, to integrates. We started talking about Darwin's and stuff, how people like, oh, man, I would have killed for Darwin's. And then, like, the worst thing that ever happened to Darwin's was albino, because then only everybody ever cared about Darwin's was to get to albino. And yeah, that, yeah, that was, one, mean, of, that was find, one of my comments. A, I know, you were completely correct. Yeah. Like, find me a wild Darwin project. Straight up non-albino lines that are just breeding to make really cool-looking Darwins. I can like, think of two: what? me, two people, and Nick. You, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't. We didn't even need to do any like. Who, and who here is surprised? Please raise your hand. Yeah. yeah I mean, and that's just and that's how it goes because you have those different lines of. Don't you already? You have lines of Darwin that have nothing to do with the albino, correct? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's where you got it. But imagine, and that's a whole thing that isn't being done with. We've seen what line breeding can do to jungles, coastals, and, and and all the others, and we're totally ignoring it in things like Darwin because of albino. All we ever you know, Darwin I want is that albino. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, okay. it was kind of like uh, you know, uh, it's and that's the same thing I I foresee with like animals like Ruffies and all, and I'm not trying to take away from them. But my, my thing is, is that I think everybody wants them because they can't have them. And then when they get, they're them, get them, it's just going to be like, uh, yeah, what the hell? It's only a brown snake with bumps, you know? Easy. All right. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dude, I can appreciate how cool stop. they are. I'm not but, saying it. I'm just saying what other people are saying. You know what I mean? It's it's all Max, about like. take away. You know. Well, you're exactly correct. It's like, dude, I tried to get people excited about my olive pythons. And, and these are like non-snake cool snake. people. Exactly. Yep. Non-snake people. I'm like, check this thing out. Oh, it's just like greenish. I'm like, what? It's like, I'm like, what? <laughs> It's an olive python. It's not really olive. It's, it's, wait, it's, but it's really cool. And they're like, well, what kind of morph is it? Albino? Is that it? What else do you need? So it's it's a lot like I think ruffies are going to follow olive pythons where a few people are going to get them because it's uh, cool to have a 1.1 in your collection. Then you can have the nut jobs like myself who really love them and have like four. And then you're going to have the ones who try to build the breeding program and get like four, but two of them are albinos, and that's it. Once you have your 1.1 of of olives, you're just why are you going to get like six? Like, there's really no reason to get a shit ton of them. So that's where it goes. Yeah, I just think like um, you know, I just think of back in the early MP days, you know, like. You would go and you would check out the Darwin sub forum and you would be yeah. like, you know, you'd be like open weird. on a yeah. wing and a prayer like, oh, my God, if I had that in my collection, it would be the greatest thing ever. I'd be so complete, you know, and then it was like, yeah. you look at the inland section and you're like, 
oh my god, you know, and and now they're here, and it's like, I, it, it yeah. just seems like the carpet world is just focused on, you know, how, how heartbroken are, how heartbroken are you going to be when that's what happens with Imbricata? <laughs> oh my like, god, dude! You know, oh, man, I can't wait for Imbricata. Oh, so, no, it's just kind of like a coastal with a weird head pattern. It's like you know that's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> So all these things are steering me in the direction of, you know, refining, you know, just who cares if it's a morph, just like, oh, yeah. be happy that, you know, again, I go into my snake room and I'm just like, dude, I can't believe I actually have a Darwin carpet or I have dude, an inland carpet or, you know, these things that at one point. Reversed. Yeah, I know. You, you <laughs> tra- you're trading away. You're trading away morph carpet pythons. Burmese pythons. I'm watching this happen. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. This is, this is, this, this is. This. I saw this years ago, but it went the other way. So it's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's what's happening. Yeah. So, but no, I totally understand it because it's like, dude, I'm looking at uh, again. I'm. We're always to, to say that we're ever done looking for new projects would be a total no. freaking yeah. lie. You're always yeah. looking. Dude, I, I'm on this kick right now where I want weird, normal, off-the-cuff, things you rarely see, colubrids. You know, I, like I had to talk myself out of buying black-tailed Karibos because i got to make sure I pay my electric bill. But, you know, it's <laughs> priority. Screw the electric bill. No, no. Wait, you need no, the electric no, 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 bill. No, need that one. Screw the, the cable screw bill, like the like, water I bill, can, cable bill. Exactly. If it were the cable bill, I'd be like, I could manage. But you know what? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know. When it came to that, I was thinking about it, but now I'm looking at, you know, uh, Karibos, Western Hognos, stuff like that. Different random things that I can breed easily that I know would kind of add some variety to the table. Yeah. You know, and, and again, I don't want the morphs. Like, I'm looking for Western Hogs. I'm like, I just want a pair of Western Hogs. And people are like, what morph? I'm like, a pair of Western Hogs. Toffee or a pair of Western Hogs. It's like, that is the hardest thing to convey to these people is I want – 1.1, just straight up normals, and uh, yeah. we'll see how that goes. But yeah. it's, it's just the way it goes, and, and you're exactly correct. I would love to see what – I think the worst thing to ever happen to rough scales would be if a morph popped out of nowhere because then it's a thing. Then people are going to want it. Why? Because there's a morph, because there's money, and I've always loved rough scales. The fact that I want three of them to produce and make some money has nothing to do with it. It's you know, and then I think that would take away from it. I think, yeah. honest to God, when when an animal has a morph, it really just sucks the fun um, part of part of the way out of it. And, and like I said, a rough like if an albino rough scale hatched out tomorrow, I would be the first one to be like, "That's amazing looking," but also I'd be like, "Damn it, <laughs> now there's yeah. less rough scales for me." So it's one of yeah, those I'm things. Not, kind I'm of not, I'm leaving not. now. Yeah, I'm not anti-morph at all. You oh, know? No, I'm and it's not it. like I mean, it's not like I'm gonna oh, yeah. get rid of the stuff that I have, but I don't know, uh, just the I, direction I get, of I my overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd get head on a rough scale. So it'd be happening. Oh dear God, it would happen. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. But I guess I guess more, and this is why I'm excited about tonight's show. Which oh yeah, Nick's Nick's on there, so he's been well, holding yeah, on there for a while. <laughs> so, but. Why I'm excited about tonight's show, because it's more about learning about, you know, again, I've said this since the very beginning of this show and, you know, ever, I mean, you know, my original goal was to keep 
uh, a pair of each species of python and uh you know try to work with them and breed them and learn as much as i can about them and you know all that kind of stuff so tonight's show i'm just going to sit back and just sort of let nick steer us on and and school us and in you know uh, all about pythons and and the history and uh you know all that kind of stuff so um let's let's get him on here and let's get it going nick welcome back what's up (laughs) uh just sitting here uh buying crap on ebay while you guys are waxing poetically about six snakes and pushing poop (laughs) on some packed animals yeah, that's what we always do. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Typical day at the office. Little, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The joys. Isn't it awesome? Like all your friends think you guys are like it's like this is like this glamorous hobby or something. It's like you're <laughs> pushing the crap out of a snake. You know, twenty yeah. minutes ago I was like pulling a stuck shed off of like a five foot candoya bibber knife, trying to latch onto my hand and put all. <laughs> She has like a, always has a bad spot of shed because at some point in her life, some lizard or bird ate a chunk of her neck. So like, uh-huh. she has no, there's like four ventral scales about six inches back from her head that are just missing and all the tissues. It's like, it's, it's amazing this thing survived and is, you know, thrives, but it's missing a chunk of its neck. But it's like, oh, every, time shed gets that point, always, every time she sheds, it gets to that point and it's like, it's all gnarly there. It, it, the shed breaks off and then she just says, eh, screw it, I'm done. And then I got to go there. So I can peel, peel it off. Yeah. Uh, wow. Joys of, the joys of being a snake breeder, I tell you. Yeah. Just yep. for the record, you guys, I have plenty of Darwin carpets. Uh, I've got a, I've got a few babies, though, and if you want some that are unrelated to anything albino, they're even different looking. I have you like you and I are going to... I have, like, one pair, because I only had, like, crappy clutch. I got, like, five babies. One pair is already reserved, but I love one pair if you want a pair. I've got... I got a pair of roughies if you need a pair of those. I got yeah, you and I are going to talk. I already told you. Well, that that, that well, phone call <laughs> where I – it's going to happen where I call you and be like, so I want a pair of roughies. And I know that the conversation will not end there, and it'll be like one of those by the end of it, I'm doomed. So, yeah, I mean, that <laughs> conversation will happen. I mean, you've got to tell me when they're yeah. ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll let you know. Geez, there, that turns out to be a – not quite as carpets can be a pain in the ass, but the roughies seem to be a bit oh. worse. Yeah, they're not. I mean, I mean, I've offered a few times. I got like one out of seven. It's like, well, that's not, you know, those carpets you'd expect to be you know, three out of seven or something. It's kind of right, 30 right. days still, but less than enthusiastic. The food responds right out of the shoot anyway. But, you know, you try to talk about selective breeding. It's like, oh my God, it's like, I think half my space in my facility is just bad. I, I've got to get rid of. <laughs> I did the math. I had to get rid of, like, I had to cut out, like, three proven breeder female brettles by so 20 egg clutch producers, three of them, because even if I get rid of three proven females, I will still have 13 adult females, just brettles. Holy crap. <laughs> because I currently have 16 of them. Wow. There's, like, four, well, I, there's, there's 12, but then there's four more that are ready this year, so they're hitting their stride this year, so it's like... And then I bet as a count all the subtitles and ones coming up. I'm this perpetual, endless conveyor belt of selective breeding, and it's like it's always pushing it one more generation in whatever direction. But the amount of what you can do with that, I've got, I've got pure Darwin tigers that look like a, they look just like what you get when you cross a coastal to an Darwin, except I didn't use any coastal blood. I just selectively right. mm-hmm. bred over two generations, striped, fully striped Darwins. Like keep 
kind of hoarding them all, but one of these days I'm going to let some go. <laughs> I sold a pair of heads last year for decent money, but I kept it's like this year I haven't really paid all that much attention to them. I just kind of get them feed and haven't paid. There's a few really nice ones in there. I've, I've selected your bread Palmerson's that are yellow now. I've got, I've got you know. Right. Kind of yeah, it's, this stuff takes time, though, but it, it, I don't know. But, it's like if you just put, like, Morph A and Morph B in the same box and you get uh, Morph C that's the combination of A and B, that's cool, but it's not really that hard, let's face it. I mean, it's a mathematical probability. There's no art to it. It's all just math <laughs> probabilities. Right. You know, the selective breeding is, like, so much more, I don't know, it's more rewarding because way harder. But when it you finally longer. get there, when you finally get to the end, well, you never really get to the end of it, but when you finally get to the <laughs> tangible progress, it's, it's a little sweeter. It's like I, I've got jungles that are as white as a piece of printer paper. And it took it only took well, 22 years, but it's there <laughs> as white as a piece of paper now. And right. I can complain that I'm as clean as I like them to be. But I've, and I've got zebras that are 75% ivory that are also white. I have one that just hatched, one single zebra. Terrible odds, so it's going to be white. I'm mean, a true black and white zebra. But that's wow. all just, you know, you can deal with anything. You can just, you can talk about jungles are all yellow. Go look at a wild jungle. And when we go to Australia, and Eric is going, for the record, I'm saying it's here, so there'll be, there'll be a public shaming of Eric Burke if he does not follow through with this. <laughs> because as some of you may know, Eric has decided to go on this trip, then decided to buy a house because his priorities are bad. Instead of going to Australia, he decided to buy a house to get that next up priority. You bastard. <laughs> and then apparently he came up with a, a, a tiny budget shortfall as buying a house tends to do. But I talked to him today yeah. right before this and everything, and I have agreed to loan. I'm telling everybody, I'm going to loan Eric the money to buy his plane ticket, so thereby removing <laughs> oh. any excuse. Oh. There's no excuse because I will loan him the oh. money for the plane ticket. We'll sort it out oh. later. So Eric is going, and I will expect a full and public flogging. If he does not follow through with this, because there's no excuse that someone else is going to float you the money oh, on no, the plane ticket. Yeah, there's, there's no excuse. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. Done. So, well, I was going to say, going with this, like, when we go there, we're going to find a jungle car. Because I'm going to leave until we find one. Because it's right. not, you know, near the top of the priority list. But when you find it, isn't it like anything like a jungle carpet you got at your house? It's going to be brown and black, or kind of dirty gold and brown, or it's going to be any number of things. But the one thing you can be almost positive it's not going to be is fluorescent yellow and jet black. You can be positive it won't be that. It'll right. be many things, probably. But, it, you know, uh, this is like, that's just, you know, a laser focus for five, six generations on one particular metric, and you get unnatural-looking snakes that people are so used to seeing that they think it is natural because they don't really realize where they came from. But right. it's a mm-hmm. man-made sort of construct. And you can do anything. Darwin's have as much potential to be orange as any jungle ever had to be yellow. Inlands have as much potential to be blue. Brattles have as much potential to be red as the jungle had to be yellow. The only difference is that these things haven't been around as long, and they're maybe a little harder to breed and takes more time, and that and people have gotten lazy because morphs right. made them lazy. If jungle carpets came into the hobby now, they would never have gotten to the point they are now, ever, because everybody oh my is, God, we're you're in right. the era of... We're in the era of lazy-ass keepers and instant gratification. I don't want to actually selectively breed this Gretel's python. I want a hypo that's already all done. I want one right. stroke done. You know, it's like, that's not what? I mean, it's like, it doesn't, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, gotta be honest, I have every single carpet python morph that exists. If you can possibly have it in a box in North America, I've got probably five of them. 
It doesn't right. matter what. I got everything. I don't care about the mixed morph combos, but if it's a pure morph combo, I have it. And if it's a base morph, I have it. And I probably got five adults. And that's all well and good, but uh, I mean that comes at a price because there's only so many cages for cartridge pythons in the United States, and if 90% of them are full of that stuff, that leaves very little left for anything else. And right. that, people are just they don't have this. They just use well morphs are now within one albino or a zebra. That's great, but it's like. Nobody selectively breeds anything anymore hardly. Or I shouldn't say nobody because I do all the time. But And there are other people. But it's yeah. that is really yeah. taking a back seat, whereas 20 years ago, that was all there was. There were no more. So everybody was just constantly, yeah. So this, these beautiful jungles, everybody complains because they get one black tip scale. Like, that's the end of the world. It's <laughs> <laughs> completely and totally unnatural thing that should never even exist. It's so incredibly yellow and black that it doesn't exist in nature anywhere like that. Right. That everybody just takes for granted. They forgot how they – it's like the pyramids in Egypt. Would you ever get to go there after you pay me back for the plane ticket? I highly recommend it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it doesn't even look real. And those pyramids were around for so long that by the time, like, Cleopatra showed the Great Pyramid that – Julius Caesar when he went as a tourist, two thousand years, two thousand, you know, first part of the first century A.D. Uh, they had already Egyptians had already forgotten how they built the pyramids. They, they were already that old. They, <laughs> people living two thousand years ago, remember, couldn't didn't know how those things were built. It had already become a mess, and that's why jungle carpet. It's like people just think that there are somewhere there's some neon yellow snakes up in trees, and there aren't. It's like that's just endlessly. I mean, relentlessly, selectively breeding the best of the best generationally to produce this. And nobody has that, or few anymore, it seems, have that sort of mindset anymore. And so maybe you're never going to see a, a solid blue inland carpet, but it's possible. I mean, it, it, there's no, you know, but uh, thing like that. I'm not saying we should forsake morphs. I'm sure as hell not going to. I think if there's some new thing, guess who's going to get it first? It's going to be right. <laughs> I mean, no question. Right. But, right. I mean, it's. Mm -hmm. If I had to choose between wild types and morphs, I wouldn't even, that would take a millisecond. You know, it's like I appreciate the the natural beauty and things and the potential within that. It's like you you don't have to choose either or. You can can work both tracks. You both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can, and you should. And you can selectively breed your morphs to look better, for that matter. You know, if you want to make a better-looking caramel, pick ingredient animals to breed that morph into that accentuate the properties in that morph you want to see accentuated, and you will make a better-looking example. It's still a morph, but you've, made a, you've refined it even further. You've made, best example, that's hypo boa constrictors. You ever look at the original hypo boa constrictors? They look like shit. They're yeah. brown. They, they really, they look, they're, they're, they're freaking dreadfully bad-looking by today's standards. And then you look at them now, and like, wow, these are beautiful. People just assume they'd always been beautiful. No, they... You had a base morph that did, you know, X amount of the work, and then selective breeding made up the difference, and you end up with those two things together. You end up with a very beautiful animal and stuff. So they're, mm-hmm. they're not mutually exclusive. So once again, you guys get me off on a tangent. I get myself off. supposed to do. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> the whole episode. We'll steer you back. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know where you want to start. Where do we Where do we start with this this topic of um, the origins? Where, where do of... pythons come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> with a mommy python and a daddy python, they yeah, love each other very much. Yeah. The movie Airplanes, like thirty years ago, by any chance, with Leslie Nielsen. Yes. Oh, that's, <laughs> I love that movie. Tell me, go, tell me, and it starts from the beginning. He's like, well, first the is cool, well. then the dinosaurs. <laughs> 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 Do you remember that? 
Maybe not <laughs> quite that far back. <laughs> yes, yeah, not quite yeah. that far back. But you have to go yeah. back pretty far. Uh, I'm going to skip the evolutionary origins of snakes for the interest of time, and we don't want to put anybody to sleep in the first few bits here, but uh, I'll just go right to pythons. Basically, the problem with snakes and fossil taxons of snakes is that snakes don't preserve for shit. Uh, there are lots of fossil snake fossils. They are almost always a couple of bones. Hey, it's half a broken jawbone and one vertebrae. And that's your snake fossil. And that's all you get. To, that's all you ever get because fossils are almost never found neatly articulated. That's a myth. I mean, every once in a blue moon under the extremely unusual conditions, and that almost that has there have been snake fossils like that, that is almost never the case. Uh, generally speaking, paleontologically, the more articulated a specimen is, i.e. the more mobility, you know, the more flexible the spine, we'll say, or whatever it is, the more likely it is to fall apart when that thing starts to decompose. And nothing is more flexible than snakes. It's just a, they're long, they're skinny, they're really, really articulated, and there are lots of little tiny bones that fall apart immediately. Scavengers pick these things apart, and they don't, they don't preserve very well. Um, so what you find with fossil pythons and snakes in general is a really kind of a poor fossil record by comparison, you know, when you look at like mammals and other reptile groups and everything. Uh, there are fossil pythons. There are fossil Australian pythons attributable to genuses that still exist at different times. There's, there was two competing theories uh, as to where pythons originated. Uh, one, which was really championed by uh, Arnold Kluge in his 1993 kind of deemed kind of a masterpiece at the time is phylogeny of the Pythonine snakes. Uh, it was a great paper at the time, and at the time he wrote it, that was like the, the best information anybody done on the subject. Turns out, most all of it's wrong. Uh, it made a couple <laughs> big assumptions that turned out to be just roundly incorrect. Uh, he postulated that pythons evolved first in Australia, then radiated north and outward to everywhere else, and that was based on two things primarily. One is that you have way more python species in uh, in Australia than anywhere else, so you have the greatest diversity, mm -hmm. which would in, which would imply, well, perhaps they've been cooking here longer than anywhere else and have a longer time to kind of diversify uh, into different groups. And then once you get out, once you get to like Asia and Africa, they're all very closely related. You have very you have much lower. The further away from Australia you get, the lower your diversity and the more closely related they are. So that made sense in that way. Also, we believe that the genus Aspidides, your blackhead, your womus was the most primitive because they lacked heat pits, they lacked thermoreceptive pits. Uh, therefore, you had most of the pythons, the greatest diversity of pythons, and the most primitive basal pythons uh, in Australia. None of that's true. For the record, I've been saying this for a million years, finally, you know, felt a little bit vindicated in this one, but uh, blackheads and womas are not, it turns out, primitive at all. They're no older or more primitive than any other python. They're just very specialized. If you swim around in the sand all the time and you eat a lot of reptiles, heat pits are much less necessary, and getting your heat pits clogged with sand really sucks. So and Makes what sense. nature does not need, it tends to streamline and remove, because everything, doesn't matter whether it's a heat pit or pigmentation, you wouldn't think that pigment, the mere having a presence of having pigment was costing you much in the way of calories, but everything costs something. That's why animals in caves, if an animal is in a cave and it has no need for eyes, the eyes you wouldn't think would be a real drain on things, but the eyes get reduced or eliminated. The pigment goes away in cave dwelling. Have you seen a cave dwelling crawfish? They're white, these kind of things, mm -hmm. because there's no need for pigment. If it's not hurting you, it must be costing you. There's some advantage. If you don't need it, you will eventually lose it, and thus, aspidides lose their heat pits, or at least the external 
vestiges of them. They're internal structures that correspond to those heat bits still underneath the scales, but externally they appear as though they are gone. They're just a very adapted. They're highly derived. They're actually one of the most. They're the most specialized pythons, not the most primitive. Okay. Uh, and what now you've got? You know, this is all done in '93 with uh, just morphological characters looking at skeletal anatomy and that kind of stuff, and a lot of supposition. Uh, now you have you know all sorts of genetic testing, and there's tons of that that's going on, and uh, that seems to have tipped the balance in the other direction. The other hypothesis, you have the Gondwana hypothesis and the Laurasian hypothesis. For those of you who don't know who Gond- what Gondwana and Laurasia are, most people are familiar with a supercontinent called Pangaea. Pangaea didn't last a terribly long time, geologically speaking, and broke apart. It broke apart m- roughly north-south, and you had a northern and southern supercontinents. Uh, the northern supercontinent was Laurasia, southern supercontinent, Gondwana. Gondwana persisted a little bit longer. Uh, so you had a Gondwana hypothesis that they originated there, uh, I, uh, which is Gondwana is Africa, South America, Antarctica, and Australia. Everything else okay. is Laurasia. Uh, so turns out that it looks now, the balance of evidence suggests strongly that they actually evolved in Laurasia in the northern continent and then radiated east and south into Australia about 35 million years ago. Uh, so that's the mid-tertiary period, you know, uh, about 35 million years ago. What's happening is at that point, if they're migrating, they evolved in Southeast Asia or thereabouts most likely, and they start migrating east. Eventually, by about 35 million years ago, Australia has broken free of Antarctica, uh, mm-hmm. finally, around this time, and has drifted north, not to the equator, but has drifted north enough to where it allow overwater dispersal. You don't need to be like, you don't actually have to slam into anything to, for animals to make their way to an area. You just got to get close enough that it will eventually happen. And so, so by 35 million years ago, Australia drifted north far enough to where pythons from Asia invaded from the north. Curiously, it turns okay. out that that's where everything came from. And there's good evidence to be a lapid snakes in Australia. Didn't come from Australia that they came in. And the monitor lizards, all the varanids, same thing. So your, the three groups of reptiles you most associate with Australia didn't come from there. Your varanids, your agam, all these, every, virtually all the reptiles you think of as Australian all invaded about 35 million years ago when the timing was right. Wow. So that's where pythons came from. Pythons go back to the you know, late, they don't really know when, because you don't, when you find a fossil, if you find a fossil you can definitely attribute to the family python, you know, the pythonidae, and you have a date for that fossil, well, you, that, all you know is that, well, there were pythons at least this early. It's not like you find the oldest python. You, that's the oldest one that anyone's found. But you don't know, I mean, you don't know when something really started. It's, just, it's a very ballpark. So circa the late Cretaceous, very first part of the tertiary period, uh, when pythons first kind of make their way on the scene. Um, and they migrate... Uh, basically, if you start in place with Southeast Asia, you have a, a split, and you have two different radiations of pythons. You've got the Afro-Asian python radiation, which mm-hmm. are all of your blood python complex and all of your African species on one side, and then another group moves east through what we now, what is now Indonesia, though it wouldn't have been like it is now, and then into Australia and Papua. And that's your Australopopulan python radiation. That's the most diverse one by a landslide. Uh, then you've got this one, you've got Retix and Timor pythons, which are not totally either. They're part of the Australopopulan python radiation, but they never quite made it all the way to Australia. They never made it on the other side of the Wallace line. 
So they like they just kind of got stuck halfway there, but they're part of that eastward radiation, but didn't make it all the way to the other side. And, so, and that is how. Hmm. Uh, so as far as explaining the great diversity of pythons in Australia, what you have is a situation where if you're hopping around from island to island in what would be proto-Indonesian archipelago, as it were, you don't have a tremendous variety of habitat. It's all tropical and subtropical islands, about what you'd expect. Uh, once you get to Australia, all of a sudden you have a giant continental landmass, and you have a huge diversity of habitat. You no longer, sure, you've got rainforests, but you've got deserts and savanna and all manner of other habitats. And what you see in the fossil record, to some extent, and particularly in the in their genetic profile, is you see an explosion of different lineages that all converge at 35 million years ago. Basically, pythons walk in the door to Australia and Papua, and then you see an explosion of diversity as they radiate all around the continent. And New Guinea is part of Australia biologically. So I'm talking about Australia. I'm talking about Australia and New Guinea because it's basically Got one it. place that periodically is separated by water and periodically not. But, uh, so you see this explosion of diversity as animals – you know, you have an animal that does really great in rainforest, living in a tree probably, but then well, there's a desert, so you have different forms, you know, walk in the door, and there's all these new habitats, so you see this massive radiation to explore and exploit all these new niches. When they get there, oddly, there's not like there's no snakes already in Australia. You've got a ton of stuff already there. So it's not like all these different reptile groups make it to Australia and there was nothing there already. You've got whatever was already there plus all these new arrivals, this kind of biological invasion to the north. Uh, one group particularly I find really interested is you have, it's an even older, it's a group of snakes that are very, very, very similar to pythons, and if you were to see one cruising around, had they not all been extinct, you would think it was a python. Uh, they're another primitive, very primitive, actually more primitive than pythons, uh, called okay. Matsoids, the Matsoidae. These are another group of diverse snakes to go back even further, uh, go back to the mid-Cretaceous at least, uh, they were the Matsoids become extinct everywhere in the world by about 55 million years ago, except Australia, where, due to isolation and everything else, uh, they persisted long after they were extinct everywhere else. Uh, kind of like the Tuatara is like this. It's like a whole family of reptiles because these two lizards live on these islands of New Zealand, and all their relatives have been extinct for uh, tens of millions of years, and they didn't get the memo because they just persisted on as a, you know in isolation. These Matsoid snakes were doing the job that pythons do in Australia now. Uh, and there were a few really, really, really big ones, uh, okay. like eighteen to like eighteen to twenty foot snakes that weren't pythons. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, the names are really a lot of the names are taken from Aboriginal dialects, so they are kind of and place names, so it is very difficult to pronounce. But uh, one of them, Yerlinger Confieldensis, that's eighteen to twenty feet long. This is about twenty three million years old. The fossil remains of the species, which is the Oligocene Miocene transition, about twenty three million years ago. Uh, but you're talking about 18 to 20 foot snake, you know, a big predator. Uh, another one, I mean, when these animals came into existence and when they became extinct is very, you know, you don't find, you find little, a few little fragments of a couple of snakes and that's pretty much all you get. Uh, one that's a lot right. better known from that medsoid group as uh, one and by Narakutensis from the Narakut caves in South Australia. Uh, this one actually is like the last surviving member of this family is this giant-ass snake that would have coexisted with people and is almost certainly extinct because of people, let's face it. Uh, oh, my God. Also 18 to 20 foot, six plus, six, five, six meters, so you're looking at like 18 to 20 foot long. Uh, 
and were alive at least up until 50,000 years ago, which would coincide with the arrival of people in Australia. And what you see is you have like a well, you see this everywhere in the world pretty much, except Africa, and that is when you see like human populations move into a new area, all the big animals become extinct within just a few thousand years. They all get killed off and stuff. And nobody likes to talk about that, and they people like to dance around that because it's you know, not very PC to think like that native people just kind of caused a mass extinction. Totally happened. Happened in North America 14,000 years ago. Seen any mammoths or mastodons lately? Nope. You know, nope. any, <laughs> any, any woolly rhinos in your neighborhood? No, no all gone. Yeah. I haven't been, no dire wolves, cave lions, none of that. All gone. And they're, it's not a coincidence that their extinction coincides exactly with when people show up. Within a few thousand years of people, that just changes. It's a, you know, Things like mastodons and mammoths survived multiple ice ages and interglacial periods just fine. The only thing different is people. To add people to the mix, everything goes extinct. Uh, <laughs> everything same thing dies from same thing happened in Australia, but it happened much earlier because modern humans make it to Australia, but nobody really knows when. At least 45,000 years ago, possibly 60,000 uh, years ago. Within that time, within a few thousand years, all these animals become extinct, including these giant non-python 20-foot snakes. So, uh, also, there's all manner of, you know, there was wombats in Australia the size of a looks like it's up, gone. You know, there's all kinds of this happens everywhere. It's happened everywhere. It's mega, look up megafaunal extinction in Australia. So that was the last of that. So in, so for a brief period of time, you would have had parallel radiation. You'd had a whole bunch of pythons that just showed up radiating like crazy, and then a whole bunch of medsovid snakes that are a lot like pythons that are already doing those same jobs. And we only have one today, so, it, I mean, it's unlikely that smaller species would have all been wiped out by people. Very large apex predators like 20-foot snakes are a different matter, but you probably have a situation where, you know, uh, out-competed. Uh, nature doesn't like to have two animals doing the same exact jobs. Usually you have what's called mm -hmm. fish partition, where one will get bigger, one will get smaller, so they're eating different food, or they'll, or they'll you know, geography. There's always something that keeps animals that would do the same job directly uh, away from each other and stuff. And in this case, the, you would have an irradiation of medsovid snakes and the new radiation of python snakes that would have competed probably head-to-head -head for food resources, and we know who won. Uh, obviously, the pythons did. In terms of pythons, yeah, the, one, the ones who are still here. here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm all for it. I mean, I wouldn't mind having a medsovid snake. That'd be pretty sweet. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's interesting reading about these things because that's like not that long ago. That's like people would have seen the, and probably ate these things. They would have seen just like these are the these snakes are running around the same time that like Megalania, you know, 15 foot monitor lizards. Oh God. And all yeah. this stuff, all that stuff is all, is all at the same time. People showed up, and that, that was what was running around. I mean, and then, but not for very long after people showed up. So, you also, then you have, in terms of once pythons, you know, there was a thread on Facebook that kind of prompted this episode, I guess, or this interview, but uh, people were asking about fossil uh, python species uh, from Australia, and there are a few, not a lot. Well, there are a number of fossil specimens of fossil extinct pythons from Australia, but a lot of it is so fragmentary, they can't really attribute, they don't have enough of anything. You know, if you find mm -hmm. a, a half-inch section of the back half of a jawbone, that's not a lot to base the whole species on. You don't you need more than that. You need, you need a few bones, you know, a vertebrae, a, you know, a, a full mandible, something to compare. And a lot of times what they find is they know it's a python, you know, but it's like there's just not enough there to conclusively say anything. So you have a lot of, like, undescribed 
you know, uh, you know, let somebody find something else that is very similar and, uh, you know, more complete specimens that they might be able to attribute it later. So it's a lot of unattributed stuff. But there are a few that have been given formal descriptions. The best-known fossil python in Australia is attributed to Morelia. Uh, it's bounced around taxonomic a little bit, but it's currently Morelia river slayensis from the river slay deposits in Queensland. Uh, they have found a number of these. This is apparently, at least in that area, locally abundant because they're found numerous specimens. You can find a whole one, but they're found fragments of multiple individuals. And when you kind of do that, you can kind of get a, a much better idea of what you're looking at. Not terribly different from a carpet python, particularly uh, morphologically, hence the attribution to Morelia. Uh, but uh, this is an old snake. You're looking at circa 23 million years ago, right around that same time with the Oligocene Miocene transition. 23 million years ago. 23 million years ago, you got a python that's basically like a carpet python even all that time ago. And that just, you know, proves kind of the efficiency of that body design, really. In that, Oh, wow. There's, well, there's, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you see yeah. some animals, you see some animals that have achieved a sort of level of biological almost perfection, and they just don't change. If you look at a 200-million-year-old shark, it looks like a shark. It it's does the same. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't change. <laughs> if you look at a boa from South, a boa constrictor, from South America, and you look at a boa from Madagascar, you can see commonality and pattern and structure. It kind of look at a Madagascar ground boa or a Jim Russell. Kind of looks like a boa constrictor, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But but those two species are separated by like forty million years. But the paint job is still largely the same, and structurally they haven't changed much. It's like because it doesn't need to change because it works. This is what's working. It's tweaked a little bit, but not a whole lot considering this enormous gulf. I mean. This unfathomable gulf of time that separates a Dumeril's boa from a red tailed boa, but they kind of still look like boas. They don't really look all that, I mean, given that, you know, not all that different. So, I mean, pythons that you can have fossils from 23 million years ago that fit neatly in the same genus we still have today, not terribly surprising because if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Right. Yeah. You do have a, and that's, that's a Morelia River Schlanders. You also have a giant, a giant. Life is fossil life is species that's more recent than around five million years ago, in the kind of the uh, early Pleistocene period. You have a uh, oh, in the last the, the Latin is horrible. It's Lysis Dubendingula, which is all like you know the down Dubendingula Dingula, circa five million years ago, largest snake ever known from Australia, living or extinct. Uh, they don't really, you know, the paper's pretty exhaustive, but they are always very hesitant to, like, give a guesstimated length um, because they're, I mean, there's just, like, a tiny bit of a mandible and a, and a handful of vertebrae. But based on the size of the vertebrae, and there are buses of the vertebrae, and vertebrae have, are nothing but muscle attachments. There's all, you can see the how big the muscle, you can get an idea of the musculature by looking at the, the muscle attachment points on that vertebrae and the overall size of the vertebrae. Just like with a lot of things, you can kind of, with sharks, you can get an estimate of the total length relatively accurately based on the size of the jaws and the teeth in the jaws. Yeah. Snakes and crocodilians are the same. You can kind of crocodilians if you can measure the skull, you can get an idea of the total length because there's a ratio there that maybe not 100%, but it gives you a pretty good idea. Snakes, there's kind of sort of the same thing as far as vertebrae and total length, but it's you know, it's not an exact science. So the paper doesn't really go into a tremendous detail into how long they say it is, although they said comparable to modern reticulated python. Pretty big snake. I mean, it went out of its way to point out, you know, that, like, 
there's a lot of structural similarities to olive pythons. Uh, mm-hmm. Some in some areas there are, and some some areas there's a lot of olive python similarities, hence the attribution to lysis. But other areas these vertebrae are very different, and they're also far larger than olive pythons. So you're looking at a a retic sized lysis in Australia circa five million years ago. But you also have wow. you also but this is pre you know no humans are there, and you had a lot of mm-hmm. giant. In that same area where they found that, they found three extinct crocodile species. You find all kinds of other large reptilian predators and stuff because the food was bigger. Five million years ago, you still have that megafauna. So you have bigger kangaroos, bigger wombats, bigger everything. Bigger everything, there's more of everything, and it's bigger. So there's bigger food, you have bigger predators and stuff. And then, uh, you know, when the big food goes away, these apex predators are, evolutionarily speaking, the most vulnerable. If you eat a very specific thing, if you're a really, if you're a 20 foot olive python like snake, you, there's got to be something. You got to be eating kangaroos or something if you're in Australia. I mean, you got to be eating something <laughs> pretty substantial. I mean, because a normal olive python will take down a pretty good size wallaby. We've all seen pictures of that. It, that's, this is far bigger than that. It's like olive pythons will eat enormous meals. So you're obviously eating something. So large apex predators tend to go away uh, because they're the most susceptible to changes in the environment. Anything changes to your food supply, you get overly specialized and in what you eat, and if any sort of disruption in your ecosystem, you're the first thing to go away um, because you're just, you're just too specialized. Being a specialized organism is it's a great way to make a living for a while. Uh, you can right. be fabulously successful right up until something changes. But if you're too specialized, you know, those animals have a hard time coping with changes uh, in a rapidly changing ecosystem. My, I was reading something, I can't remember who it was, but then years ago, and they said, the secret to life is weediness. Be like a weed. Weeds are adaptable, they'll reproduce them, at, you know, almost instantly. They can live in a variety of climates and everything. Being like a weed, I mean, you can't ever get rid of a weed. Uh, things that are right. overly specialized get so sensitive and stuff, and they can't, you know, well, look at like a giant panda. A panda's an animal that used to be carnivorous, <laughs> and now it's these bamboo. It's like, what's going to happen if all the bamboo went away? Your pandas are going to go Dead. away. If all yeah. you use bamboo, if anything happens to your bamboo at all, you're screwed. You're gone. You're done. <laughs> you ever seen a short faced bear? Me neither. They're extinct. Why? They're too big and too specialized. Pleistocene ends, short faced bears are gone. You can't cope with that. You can't cope you can't overly specialized or supersized sort of things. You ever notice like all the really giant examples of every whatever it is, there's always some fossil version that's way bigger. Fossil yeah. shark, like a Fossil shark, like a megalodon, way yeah. bigger than a great, like a great white, but way bigger. But there used to be a lot more whales to eat. Food goes away, they go away. There used to be everything, crocodiles, no matter what it is, giant snakes. It's like There's always some giant fossil version that conveniently is extinct because it got too big. And then, you know, if you're a 20-foot-long snake, you're going to eat something huge. You're probably eating primarily one thing at that point. Because there's not like right. a whole bunch right. of things in that size range you're, you're taking down, so you're... You get too uh, you get too uh, reliant on you know a narrow menu, and then you can't adapt and stuff. So but yeah, and that is where pythons in Australia come from. The record so, is split between snakes and timber pythons, and all the rest of the proper Australian poplin pythons about 45 million years ago. So by yeah, 55 million years ago, they start moving away from Asia, moving east. By 45 million years ago, the retic and timber python clade kind of stalls in place, and the rest of them keeps marching on. And by 30, no, 10 million years later, hit Australia, and then explode in diversity. And all the different genuses that we see, 
you know, whether it's Aspidites, Antaresia, Lysis, Moralia, mm-hmm. all of those different genuses of Australian pythons, and Papa, they all, the divergence time is all the same. They all split, they all go back to 35 million years ago. It's like there's nothing like split off later. Individual speciation events happen later, but the main lineages all go back to like, they all, they, it's like they diverge immediately upon arrival into different groups and then never look back. So I think that's pretty interesting, but <clears throat> kind of yeah, it is like everybody just kind of deviated when they got there. So, so, yeah. so Nick, they used to say that blackheads and walmas were the most, uh, you know, primitive uh, species of python. What do they think it is now? That it's not really. Uh, that is kind of a difficult sort of a question. I, I don't really have a good answer for that. It's definitely not blackheads and walmas. That's for sure. Okay. What is the most basal of the python group? These things are all. When you read these papers, I, I don't see how to take these things with a grain of salt, but. Yeah. Any paper that's published in any academic, you know, journal or whatever, what that represents is the conclusions of this group of researchers and the best conclusions they could come to given the evidence and the technology they had at their disposal at that point. But that is subject to the scientific method, the scientific process. Later researchers were constantly overturning. You know, when Kluge published that Python phylogeny in nineteen ninety three, everybody took it nearly as gospel and that's what's printed reprinted in the in DPI's uh, Pythons Volume 1 Australia book, which is very influential to a lot of us and everything. But it's right, completely right. wrong. I mean, but that was the best anybody could figure out given everything they had at their disposal in 1993. Uh, subsequent researchers have learned a lot more. But it would be foolish to think that the conclusions that we have today are never going to be overturned. What is likely happens is now that we have DNA is a pretty powerful tool for this kind of stuff. It's not the only tool. It's not the only thing that matters. But you'll see probably less and less revisions. It will, you will get more and more kind of agree, broad agreement with things. And you don't see massive wholesale moving of animals. And taxonomy is getting a little bit more fixed, I guess, with regards to this stuff. As we have more, uh, we're getting a better picture, I guess. Uh, if you look okay. at like review the taxonomic history of any of these python species, it's absurd how many times they've bounced around from this genus or mm-hmm. that genus, some of the conclusions of some of these pretty, you know, well-respected minds of, you know, herpetology past and everything are pretty ridiculous, the conclusions they come up with in some cases, you know. <laughs> but it's really obvious. Well, part of that is a lot of the people that write these papers have never even seen one of these things. They're like, they're not. Right. They're people in labs or they're counting scales. They're never, like, kept these things or worked with them. You learn some things from that. So they come to sometimes, like, I'm gonna, almost makes me giggle. There's a, a great paper in 2003 that clearly shows that green tree python should be at least at minimum two different species, north-south. It doesn't go, right. fall short of naming them, but it you know, clearly makes the case these are two totally different snakes, vastly different genetically. And even the title, which is basically you know more technical nomenclature, but basically says, yeah, these are really different snakes. We were survived because we can't tell apart when we look at them. And I'm like, really? You can't tell these things? You can't tell a... a you can't tell us the wrong chondro from an aru chondro by looking at it. Like, like it's like a, in my eyes, in my mind, it's like if you've got forward-facing eyes and binocular vision, you can tell them apart because they look nothing like. But, <laughs> like they can't, can't get over. It's like, well, they're both green, so therefore I can't tell them apart. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, body structure is different, head structure is different, tail length, tail tip structure different. You know, 
neonatal color is different in a lot of cases. It's like there's a ton of morphological differences, but if you're just not into keeping snakes or really in tune with that, apparently if it's green, you, can miss it. you can't tell two, yeah. two green snakes apart. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's baffling. For a long time, and you still see this, some Australian herpers were still can't seem to figure out that a fuscus is not a maclot python. Because for a while, <laughs> there, uh, there, at one point, they were all maclotti, and then they were fuscus and stuff. So you still see, once in a while, you see Australia refer to maclot pythons. Like, no. It's like, if you can't tell a maclot python from a water python, you need to have your eyeballs <laughs> back in your head. Yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah. different. Aside from not living in the same place and overlapping nowhere and having completely different head structure, the paint job's different, the attitude's largely different. There's different snakes. You know, one's got this crazy iridescence. The other one doesn't. It's like, it's like how can you possibly confuse these two snakes? Right. They're genetically closely related, but they don't look a damn thing alike, and structurally they're not even the same. It's like, I, don't, I don't understand how they ever would come to that conclusion. At one point, the timber pythons, the timber pythons, was considered a subspecies of Burmese python. That's how ridiculous some of these things have got. You know, it's like wow. It's a <laughs> you know, this yeah. Is, this is one hundred and fifty years ago. I mean, but it's like I mean, this, this is. But what you're going to see is over time. This is you know, if you look at the the structure of the genuses for all the uh, pythons now, it all makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It's mm-hmm. like they are natural groups. All the Antaresia belong together. Clearly, you know, all the freaking <laughs> you know. The one that was paraphyletic was Moralia, where you had the scrub pythons and the chondros and the carpets all dumped in together, and they don't belong together. What they did, I think, is just morphologically, basically, anything has a preamble tail, let's belong together, and that's not really, that's not the case. Um, so now you've split off the scrubs into Simalia, which was a no-brainer. I mean, that's like, that's an obvious thing that needed to be done, because they're vastly different than the rest of those things. You know, but now we're seeing the only other thing I think needs to happen is the blood pythons probably might deserve their own genus because once again you've got this closely related clade that are obviously belong together that aren't like anything else. Right. Uh, in many, many ways. They really feel like they should have their own genus. But beyond that, you're pretty well I don't think you're gonna see a lot of big movements as far as different genuses and stuff and you're, you're the kind of the picture of how things are now and how they got to be that way does come into sharper focus. Uh, and stuff now that we have newer tools at our disposal and stuff. So, well, do you guess, think at do you think at some point ahead. that they'll break down the scrub pythons into more species similar to what yeah. you see with uh, yeah? Is this like a oh, northern yeah. southern thing, kind of like chondros? Well, that that's a that's a no brainer. For the record, anyway, listen. There's uh, you got the central mountain range, the central kind of. Dividing range in New Guinea runs east-west. It kind of cuts the north off from the south. And that's mm-hmm. pushed up by tectonic uplift. Basically, the southern half of New Guinea is part of Australia. And that's the top part is a part of a different tectonic plate. And as Australia is slamming in, still moving northward, he's pushing those mountains up. Those mountains are about 14 million years. They started lifting up about 14 million years ago. So right. anything that's shared distribution on both sides, north and south of those mountains, what the event that has caused them to be separated, that speciation event, is the tectonic uplift of those mountains. And thus, those animals have been separated for circa 14 million years. That's a long-ass time. Right. And so what you see is there's a lot of species that share distribution north and south 
of those mountain ranges, but every time they test the DNA, they always come to the same conclusion. And that is that the northern and southern clades are different at the full species level. And that is going to be that has been the case with the white-lipped pythons, two different species. You know, you've got the scrub pythons are clearly two different species. It's always the case with them. So I'm like, you know, but there are other things nobody's really done much work with, like the Papuan, Apodora Papuanus, they're on both north and south. Uh, but no one's really? bothered to... Yeah. I didn't know that. North. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Huh. Uh, so you've got these animals that any of straddles that line north and south, you get two different types. You all, that will almost certainly, you know, well, I mean, you got to test samples and do a lot of that, but it, it, it seems likely those are actually probably two different things, because why would they be different? Why would they, you ever know, it's like, well, geez, we found spotted pythons in extreme southern New Guinea, but you didn't find any in the northern part, did you? No, because that mountain range, nothing's crossing that mountain range, it isn't already on the other side at this point. Uh, there's glaciers on that mountain range, it's that tall. I mean, you're not, you're not crossing. Stuff. The condor right. full side, two different snakes. Uh, so you get, uh, yeah. I mean, you'll see, you will see further movements. And also, scrub pythons are being very, being very boreal. Boreal snakes tend to disperse over water more easily. If you look at the distribution mm-hmm. for snakes that live in trees versus snakes that live on the ground, you find that the ones that live in trees live on a lot more islands, don't they? Look at all mm-hmm. those tiny islands that green tree pythons on them, uh, and tree monitors on them for that matter, and. Uh, in that part of the world at Boyka, all the cat-eyed snakes are arboreal. How many Boyka? Yeah. They're all they're on every friggin' island in Indonesia. And retics all over the place on islands. They had to get wet to get to those islands and stuff. But you don't, if a terrestrial snake or a terrestrial lizard would need like a the proverbial floating mass of debris and storm debris and vegetation to kind of raft to get to a new location, which is a pretty unlikely it happens. It's been documented to happen scientifically documented to happen, been witnessed even, but it is, it's an incredibly unlikely and rare event. Uh, and then even if it happens, you'd have to establish population, which is not guaranteed and probably unlikely. So that is a really difficult scenario to pull out for something that's not very seaworthy. However, an arboreal species, particularly nothing holds on like an arboreal snake. That preamble tail, an arboreal snake does not need a mat of vegetation. All it needs is the stick it was already sitting on. You know, <laughs> yeah. In an area, part of the world that gets tons of tropical cyclones and tropical storms, if you're in a tree, in a mangrove tree near the coast, and a storm, storm blows, snaps your branch up and blows you out in the ocean, there's your raft, and you ain't going to dislodge them. They're going to cling to that branch for dear life because it matters. And they, they, only need, they don't need a raft. They just need the one stick they're already sitting on. So you see them much more broadly distributed if they're arboreal. Whereas you look at blood pythons, nope, it's the opposite. they got a short, stubby tail. They're nowhere. They're in the Malay Peninsula. And they're on a couple islands in Indonesia, but those islands in Indonesia they're on are part of 12,000 years ago, part of the mainland. They didn't have to swim there. They just, like, water rose up and cut them off. I mean, it's like they didn't have to disperse over water at all, you know. You don't see ball pythons in a bunch of offshore islands, you know. It's, no. <laughs> but you see retics are all over the Look at timber pythons. They don't have to, they've lost, they're closely related to retics, but they've lost their preamble tail. And their tail is shortened a lot. They exist in just a couple little islands are real close together. They're not broadly distributed. Their sister species, retics, retain the preamble tail. They got, they're all over the damn place because that is a real strong, uh, you know, uh, tool in helping you disperse, uh, however, accidentally. Also, that and the, the now the uh, revelation that all pythons, it seems, are capable of parthenogenic reproduction. It's like, 
good lord, all you need is a stick you're sitting on and one female. It's like right. you, you can literally have one species. Yeah. Like, oh, and then you know, you know, which is you know probably why these snakes have persisted for 55 million years. You can't hardly get rid of them. Uh, so that's a couple of pretty uh, useful things. Okay. So with 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 retics, um, I'm curious is is the thought uh, with the dwarfs and uh, on these islands similar to what goes on with the boas, where it's a, it's a matter of food, um, or what's the well, thoughts yeah, on? It absolutely, is. it's like it's, things. Well, of all the different kind of biological parameters, I mean, we tend to focus in the hobby on color and pattern, sometimes size, mm. sometimes attitude. All those things matter in the grand scheme of things, but size, it turns out, is actually one of the easiest to change. You ever had a litter of puppies? Mm, no, but all right. No, There's always like a puppy, there's always like a runt in the litter. I mean, it doesn't take much. Those yeah. runts don't ever get very big. It's like nature can upsize and downsize really rapidly. Uh, that is not a huge change, necessarily. Not not uh, not in the grand scheme of things. That's a relatively minor change. So mm-hmm. if an animal, you know, if a retic, if a mainland retic makes it to some small island, we'll use that as a hypothetical, and, you know, there's a whole clutch of eggs and everything, and there's nothing on that island bigger to eat than a rat, it doesn't make any sense to get big enough to eat the orangutan if there's nothing bigger than a rat to eat on that island. Right. Given enough time and enough age, animals will reproduce, snakes will reproduce a lot smaller than people think they will. And stuff, and you over it won't take that many generations before nature will downsize, and you will have a smaller animal or upsize. If there's not much to eat, you will, uh, you know, you will upsize to take advantage of whatever food resources plentiful to you. Uh, that brings back to Moralia, a really extreme example. The most extreme example that probably known is uh, Imbricata on Garden Island off the coast of West Australia. Uh, Garden Island has Imbricata on it. But there isn't anything to eat on Garden Island. There are literally like two things to eat on the whole island for a snake, and they are really different in size. You've got mice, and you've got small wallabies, and almost oh, nothing God. in between. Okay. So what you find is that you have this unbelievable sexual size dimorphism just in the local population of Imbricata on one island. It's not a different species, just in this one island population where the males are freaking microscopic, you know, like 250, 300 gram snakes. And the females are huge, seven, seven and a half foot snakes. Because the males, they'll all eat, they'll all eat the mice, because there's a lot more mice than there are wallabies. But eventually the females keep growing and big enough to take advantage of the large food resource, the wallabies. The males just never do. They just stay small and eat mice. And thus you have this, like, ridiculous tiny toothpick male, these great big giant females. Because that's all there is. And they still breed. <laughs> it's freaking hilarious. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> these snakes breed a lot. I mean... Every male metcalfi I've ever had has started producing a sperm about 250 grams, which is absurd. It's the size of your index finger. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never tried to breed one at 250 grams. I doubt they would, but I mean, maybe I don't know. But they'll get a if you cycle them, and they'll have a they'll even get like a heavy penal bulge, like a freaking lizard. They'll get literally like a dick bulge. On this, on a 250 gram snake, they'll get a heavy penal bulge as their heavy penis is becoming gorged, and the sperm plugs are 250 grams. Insane, but they're not. I mean, they are biologically at that point if they haven't gorged any beans and bulge even, which is unusual for any python really. And then 
you know, and big sperm plugs, like they are capable of reproducing at this microscopic size. Whether they do or not in captivity, I mean, that's a whole other matter. But the fact that they're capable of that, or apparently outwardly capable of that, is uh, something to ponder. I had a jungle carpet yeah. at 220 grams do the same thing at 220 grams. Like, are you kidding me? He never did for <laughs> Never, never bred. you. Never bred ever for that matter, but I was like, he was ready to go at this ridiculously small size. Jeez. So, are you are you feeling, Nick, that as we're getting kind of like more into the DNA testing, that we are starting to figure out like the bigger pieces to the puzzle of where the pythons kind of came from, and you know, like you said, the uh, the whole taxonomy is kind of getting mostly figured out here. Is that all kind of the DNA it, testing? In the last twenty years, you've had like or twenty twenty five years, you've basically almost thrown out ninety percent of it. Because it was Jeez. all not right. It's it's not thrown it out, but rearranged and rejiggered everything. And it's you know what was believed you know in the early '90s is very different from what is commonly accepted today and stuff. And I would say that we are getting closer and closer and closer. I mean, uh, to you know putting this, these sorts of things to bed. I mean, whether you always have disagreement in the scientific community, uh, there's, you're never going to get complete agreement on any of these things. And they'll always do mm. a little tweak. But I'm saying what you're, you're likely headed towards a scenario over the next 20 years where you're going to be seeing, like, small tweaks and changes but not massive moves of, you know, it'll be – the picture becomes much clearer and stuff. So if you look back at, like, some of the things they've attributed to – oh, geez. Also, the quality of work that's done as far as taxonomy and these sorts of things is the quality of the work that people do now is infinitely better than it was. You know, researching okay. for, you know, books I've worked on and this and that, you – you get a lot of the old original species descriptions. Like, I'm somewhere I could dig it up. I've got the original species description for the Woma, and it is literally like one and a half paragraphs. The whole thing <laughs> describes the Woma is like one and a half paragraphs. It's got no information that's useful in it whatsoever. It's because that's how stuff was done in the 1830s. You know, it's like there was this, you had a bunch, you know, it was a fashionable thing to do if you're kind of a well-heeled Brit to go down to the developing world, Australia, Indonesia, just like, play amateur naturalists and send specimens back to museums and name a bunch of stuff. Um, so it's very sloppy by comparison. Whereas now, if a species is described now, it's exhaustive. Like the amount of work that is put into the, a good proper species description now is, it's really, I mean, quite a different thing than what was done in, you know, in even decades past. If you look at, you know, the original description for Brettles pythons, which I'll say it again is a full species. So anybody listening, I don't want everyone to see this spilota bradley nut. You have one Australian author that published a couple of things that just for no reason that he could even justify decided it was a subspecies. Yeah, and then thanks. later published something else that even said, I don't really have a reason for this, but I consider it a subspecies. He even called attention to the fact that he didn't have a justification. Not a, <laughs> never was, never will be, always a full species. But the original description is pretty sparse. It is, you know, it's you know, it's a couple page thing. It's not, it's not this giant exhaustive. There's no, there was no DNA to do in those days. Mm-hmm. But it's not. This is like an '81. I mean, it's not like a million years ago. But it's, it's the standard of of work has really uh, the bar has been raised tremendously over the last you know, thirty odd years and stuff for this stuff. So. And with more careful scrutiny and more exhaustive work, you do end up with probably a more reliable result in general. So, yeah. 
Has it also cut down from, like, people just randomly naming species um, just kind of because they feel that's the way it should go? Has that kind of cut down in the past couple of years? I mean... I don't want to mention his name, but we all know who I'm talking about. (laughs) But, yeah. (laughs) That's a, you know, pretty controversial one there. But, uh, you know, think about... And we all know who you're talking about and all that. Is it like, you know, not always wrong. That's the thing. It's like the quality mm-hmm. of work and, the, and all of that is like, uh, you know, obviously uh, you could, uh, could uh, take some umbrins with some of that. But, uh, you know, some of those conclusions are not wrong. And that is the problem. And, you know, that particular individual was the first one to ever put that uh, timber pythons belong in a separate genus with retics, not with anything else. And that was the correct conclusion. You can argue the methods. Yeah. You can argue all manner of technical merits of all that. But at the end of the day, that was the correct conclusion. And yeah. I think there's a there's always a massive amount of effort uh, to suppress everything that that particular individual does. But it, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. It was right on an, on not. I mean, wrong on a tremendous number of occasions for sure, but not a hundred percent of the time wrong. You know, uh, before before he before him, you had Wells and Wellington, who wrote two papers that everybody just completely dismissed, and mm-hmm. uh, they were absolutely just like people tried to sweep those in the rug, same sort of thing, tried to suppress them, tried to do all these sorts of things. But you know, those papers, while a lot of that was completely incorrect too, some of it was totally spot on. Um, if you've ever referred to any of the carpet python subspecies, those are all names from those Wells and Wellington papers that everybody tried to try to sweep under the rug. Cheney, McDowley, Metcalfi, all those are names from those two Wells and Wellington papers uh, in 84 and 85. And so same sort of thing, same sort of, you know, the whole species descriptions, one freaking paragraph. Because one of those papers, they're trying to describe like 200 species and rearrange all of Australia's perps basically in one paper. Thing. <laughs> but, you know, who was the one to coin the term the genus Antaresia and say, hey, you know, all these little uh, children's pythons and things are not, in fact, members of the Lyaces genus. <laughs> they should be in their own genus. That was Wells and Wellington. Wait, and they were right. They were in Lyaces? Because they were right. Yes. All these, all these, <laughs> everything was in Lyaces. Everything was they in Lyaces. They don't look like it. Whatever. <laughs> all the Antaresia were all lumped in with Lyaces until Wells and Wellington in 1984 coined the genus Antaresia and split them off. And everybody pissed down those guys' back too for that for that paper, but they were right, and they were the and no one else was mentioning that. They were like absolutely, they were correct. They hit it. They were right, and that is, and we all use that genus today because they were right. I mean, the papers are terribly flawed. Their methodology. There's a lot you can you can endlessly go on about how bad this is or that is, but sometimes you know they're right. They took them the right conclusion. So I don't know. Hmm. I don't agree with Ray Hoser on a tremendous number of things, uh, but you know it's he has occasionally had the right conclusion. Now, whether his paper should be valid and his name should stand and all of that is a whole other issue that's very complicated. Mm-hmm. But you know the conclusion is right. Yeah, you know, it's almost impossible to actually name something a new species because really, what you do you have to search back through and see if anybody else at any point in history has ever named uh, that particular animal as anything. And then in the terms of the, the zoological code for nomenclature, 
you have to use the oldest name on record. You can't just give it a new name if somebody else 100 years ago had named the same thing. You have to resurrect an old name. So anymore, it's almost always, you know, when they split the Chondros and then now you have Morelia Azuris in the north, it's not a new name. That name was coined in like 1885. And then later authors thought it was just redundant, that it was just, it was Viridus, but then, no, nope, they go back to the old name and stuff. If Beyond <clears throat> Chondros are split off as a separate, there's already another name that's also, you had three different people all named green tree pythons as different species all within five years of each other. And in all likelihood, none of them knew that the others were doing it because it's not like they had, like, the Internet. They're all these, like, 1880s. They're traced around in New Guinea. I mean, it's like nobody – I'm sure they didn't even know the other ones were even there. And so, so there's all these names available. So most of the time, it's a, it would just be a name that you just resurrect. People give things a name, and later people think they know better. They say, oh, that's just a children's python, and then it's, it's what synonymizes something else. So you have to resurrect an old name out of synonymy. If on the rare occasion you find something totally new that no one has ever named, well, then it's an entirely new name. But usually, even when you have a new species, it's usually just resurrecting something that people thought was not valid 150 years ago and stuff. And there will be, you know, there are scrub pythons on a tremendous number of islands that are as yet undescribed. There are going to be new scrub pythons. Now, I don't know. I'm not, wow. I, got a few, I got a few ideas as to right. why you'd like to look, but that's, right. you know, that's for scientists to do, I guess, and field biologists to do and stuff. But it's, you know, but I guarantee you, there's a 90% chance that it won't be a new name. It'll be some, it'll sound new, but it'll be some name that some dude in the 1890s, uh, you know, <laughs> sent one back to some museum in Germany or something, and then it's name. It'll, just be, it'll be resurrected, as that is usually, that is usually what, what happens these days. So, but yeah, there's, wow. it would be foolish to think that we know everything about pythons and where they are mm-hmm. and what they are and where they are uh, right now. Uh, they're, you're, not gonna, you're not seeing massive numbers of new species, but there's a blood python, a short-tailed python described species named from Malaysia about five or six years ago. You know? Yeah, I was going to ask you Malaysia about that. From, uh, from, not from Malaysia, from uh, Myanmar and stuff. So, but they don't export, so you're not going to get one. But and it, and what's the deal with that? I mean, I don't think, I think know how many specimens they have. But it's, you know, so you do occasionally get something new. Uh, Indonesia is going to be where that kind of stuff happens because you've got, uh, because they're just, islands are great incubators for new species. Uh, right. right. The perfect isolated closed ecosystem. Mutations and and things occur in a closed gene pool and everybody's got a pretty close relative. Any favorable mutation that pops out is going to be, you know, circulate through a gene pool very quickly. And so that's why you find all sorts of weird little things on islands. Uh, so there, there will be new python species, but starting looking at little islands in Indonesia, there's a, a high, uh, high likelihood that that's where you're uh, going to find them. Jeez. Yeah, that's the best bet for What about, uh, I remember when we talked to Blake Bauer, he was, uh, this is a long time ago, but he was talking about how tannin bars are more, are closely related to, King um, Horn Eye. How does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These are non snake related things happening now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never knew uh, that about I'm cooking dinner for my kids and actually I gotta turn the stove on, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I got some fish sticks to cook, man. Even being a single dad, you know. Fatherly duties. Fish sticks are awesome. So, yeah, go ahead. I can't eat them. I'm like, you know, I can't eat them. Are you kidding me? A french fry? You out of your mind? <laughs> you better step your game up for this trip, Eric. You need to get, you got a few months to get your ass in shape. Yeah, I know. <laughs> run, up, run up the art museum steps. There you go. That's right. That's right. That's it. Now, uh, yeah, of all the script pythons, the most two most recently diverged uh, and closest related uh, are tandem are the most extreme. Tandem bars and King Horn and I are the most closely related and only diverged from each other like three million years ago. So a northern huh. bar neck and a southern are going to be more distantly related than a tandem bar and a King Horn and I. That's how fast that metric of size can change. The largest and the smallest are the most close. It's like, and they're not that, they're more recently separated. Huh. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. That's weird. So, but, what about you know, if you these- get- you have an island, there's nothing to eat bigger than a mouth. doesn't make much sense to be 15 feet long, does it? Right. No. What about the idea of chondros actually being taken out of Morelia? Um, you think that that will happen at some point? Um, I don't know. I mean, it would just be what would have to happen is there would be resurrect the genus chondro python. But the main diagnostic, I'm just going off memory, riffing off memory here. As I recall, I believe the main diagnostic characteristic for the genus chondropython was that they had no teeth in their maxillary bone, but chondros do. So it turns out that the whole basic linchpin for the diagnostic factor for the genus wasn't even actually true, so they just did away with the genus. But chondro is not a green tree python. I mean, I mean, chondro is not a, we call them chondros over there. I mean, a green tree is not a carpet python. They don't seem no. I mean, even if, a, I mean, you see this, you know, epidemic of carpondros lately, but uh, but they're totally, they're fertility challenges. Like, there's a reason why the males don't make good, don't make babies. <laughs> like, like they're, because they're, they can just barely, you can breed it together, but just barely, you know. Um, uh, you get better fertility out of a woma carpet than you do out of a green tree carpet. So oh. what I'm you. Yeah, it all makes oh. money. It all makes me kind of throw up in my mouth and talk and say it out loud. Yeah. Waste the two perfectly good snakes. But um you know it, it, the fact that they are fertility challenged is just speaks to the fact they are not closely related at all. Um and that's uh so I don't know. That's a that's a more technical point. Uh I feel in, if you're asking my my opinion, I do yes. believe they should be separated uh, into their own genus. Uh, there was hmm. a paper that came out that suggested that rough-scale pythons are more closely allied in sister species than green tree pythons. Then there was another paper that came out later that kind of placed green tree pythons or rough-scale a little closer to the carpet group. They need more, you know, that's an area it's like uh, that further study is needed. You probably, somebody needs to probably work on a paper just resolving the phylogeny of the northern and southern green tree python clades and Carinata and the sea. Because what you get is usually like a paper that's trying to do a lot of things or they're looking at a whole lot of different things, and that's just a subset of that. That's just one thing they're looking at. Whereas if they mm-hmm. the whole paper was, that was the entire focus, you'd get larger sample sizes and more in-depth study into just that thing. You'd probably have a more predictable and – not predictable, but a more reliable result. So my gut would say yes. I, if I were 
if I were to play amateur taxonomist, I would make some changes. Uh, right. It's kind of come around. I, I talk to Ryan Young all the time, and, like, there's a lot of stuff we've been screaming about for 20 years, but nobody listens to us, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ring pythons and white lips should be in the same genus, and that's been pretty much affirmed, that they all should be in Bothrochylus, and that, you know, that all these, that, you know, some of these things are kind of, you can kind of see it. It's pretty obvious. Uh, I do think that inland carpets probably should be separated at the full species level and not under the Spilota group. They, the only real genetic testing that's been done of them showed them to be vastly different, uh, far in a way enough to be a different species. But right. because in terms of zoological you know, taxonomy, there's no rule for how much weight to give DNA evidence at all. It's yeah. completely, it's, because the rules for what, how to classify a species are but you use the same rules for 200 years, long before anybody knew what DNA was. So while everybody wants to use DNA, how how different how much DNA differenti- differentiation d- should you have to be a different species? Uh, there is turns out there's no rule at all. It's just entirely yeah. up to you. It's just completely the opinion of whoever wrote the paper. You know what they say about opinions. So, you you know, mammals evolve much faster than reptiles do, really. But you see, like, every mammal is split down into 8 different thousand different species and subspecies. But they want to lump all these snakes that are separated for 40 million years into one species. They apply one standard to one type of animal and a totally different standard to another. You know, I mean, the the inland carpets came out as 4.9% sequence diversion from all the other carpets. Basically, five percent different. You guys, that we're considerably less than five percent different from a chimpanzee, and humans and chimpanzees aren't even in the same genus. Right. So yeah. <laughs> one, so what the hell? Less than one percent difference is enough to be to warrant chimpanzees and humans being in different genuses, let alone species. But somehow, a python needs to be more than five percent difference to be to be a separate species. It's like, it's a completely nonsensical sort of, and, and kind of, kind of hypocritical is even the right word, but it's, it's absurd. It's like, there should be one, if anything, one the animal that tends to, if anything, the animal that tends to evolve slower, that 5% sequence divergence is more significant than something that is moving a lot faster. But I don't know. Yeah. What do I know? I'm not, not a taxonomist, but, <laughs> but, uh, I'm cute. What? I was going to say, I'm curious, um, you know, me and Owen have talked about this before. Where do Angolan pythons fit in? Are they the, the, the cross between, like, a, a, say, a rock python and a ball python? or bastard child of a ball python. A... <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a myth that, like, you know, a lot of people like to, you know, hybridize snakes, tend to throw a that stuff out. I mean, I, I, over the myth, that kind of herpetological urban legend, I've heard that one with Angolans and for a while, it was, you know, that, uh, what was it, that, uh, I was some about scrubs and retics and, you know, this kind of the same sort of nonsense. It's like, you know, animal A does not just bump into and hybridize with animal B in the wild, and those hybrid offspring then go on to just form another third species. <laughs> that doesn't really happen. Right. They don't go off on their own. That's, that's, pretty not, that's pretty silly. Now, hybridization happens in the wild, and sometimes you have, like, you'll find evidence of hybridization events, but it doesn't really, like, make a third thing. Sometimes one species will absorb a neighboring-related form. That happens. Or they'll get together and 
make some hybrid babies and then get absorbed into one of those things later. I mean, you see that same scenario with uh, uh, bears, with grizzly bears and polar bears. Polar bears, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll see they have found hybrids. And what happens is in different climatic periods where sea ice is very minimal and the polar bears are forcing them to land a lot more and they will hybridize. So in the genomes of those two species, you'll see a little evidence of past hybridization events in different periods of time. There's still polar bears and grizzly bears. There's a little bit of intermingling. The offspring did not become a third type of bear. Right. <laughs> so you don't, you don't have, like, you don't have like, you know, like, they don't just split her off and like, okay, I guess that's that. We're going to live on an island to be a new species. It's kind of... <laughs> so we're good now. Why? Well, it's true. Hybridization has a, isn't one process that plays its way, works its way to evolution and things that, well, I mean, you guys are both very Caucasian, uh, so you are of <laughs> Northern European. And this yeah. uh, brings back to humans and it really drives point home. Uh, any creationists, I guess, can turn the interview off now. But uh, <laughs> What were they doing here anyway? That is, that's to say that the, you know, you guys on average being kind of the lily white pasty skin, Eric is going to burn when we go to Australia. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'd die. You are probably about three or three and a half percent Neanderthal. Um, nice. So we know that because we have sequenced the entire Neanderthal genome, but about if you're of Northern European descent, about 3% of you on average, are 3% of your genome came from Neanderthals that got absorbed. Now, the Neanderthal and anatomically modern human hybrids that were made, however many, did not just become a third species of human. They just they <laughs> contributed to us, and there's a little bit of us in, there's a little bit of them in all of us, more in you right. than me, but right. a little bit. Um, you know, and, and that's, uh, and if you're, uh, you know, in Far East or Southeast Asia, there's a Neanderthal sister group called Denisovans, which were much like Neanderthals, uh, and the ratio is even higher. So if you're from South Asia, Micronesia, the Solomons, most places, you're up to 10% Denisovan DNA, which is another Neanderthal sister group. So these paleo kind of archaic human species have contributed, even in recent times, to our own genes. We didn't make a, didn't make a third type of human, just kind of absorbed, got a little bit got absorbed in and there's a little pinch of that in us but we're still us we didn't become didn't turn into something else but right. there are some things that there are now some emerging evidence that some of the kind of some of the there are some things that we got out of the deal and evolutionary benefits of that neanderthal uh mating. one thing they i found it really interesting read an article on the first the neanderthal genome they sequenced completely it was a a part of a woman's jawbone uh, in a cave in Croatia about 48,000 years ago, and she had uh, red hair and green eyes. <laughs> like, you don't think of Neanderthals with red hair and green eyes. No. But, uh, <laughs> no. So, anybody out here that's a ginger, got to, uh, you know, it's like, uh, guess where that might have come from, guys? <laughs> yeah, crap. All right. All right. All right. Answer that question. Lineages aren't neat and tidy things, and doesn't matter if you're talking about snakes or people or anything else. It's like it's more of a very busy, convoluted bush, and there's a lot of little, edge, a lot of those branches don't go anywhere, and you know, and there's a lot of dead ends, and eventually there's something that leads to us or a carpet python or whatever. But it's kind of a messy, complicated story. Uh, things, you know, are separated, and then they come back together again at times. You know, so a population we split and start down the path towards becoming two different species and something else will change and they'll come back together, interbreed again, then become separated again. 
and these sorts of things happen uh, pretty regularly. So it's 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 very difficult to kind of tease all that apart. Uh, you know, looking at the evidence, it's uh, it, it, it's a difficult process, but it's fascinating. It's, you know, to ponder how things got to be the way they are. Hmm. When did, like for a species that. <clears throat> I guess this comes down to what you were saying about, um, you know, uh, the way taxonomy is. But if a species is, uh, you know, on an isolated island, let's say, and, you know, uh, like a bioc, let's take a bioc chondro. Is that is that something to that you would totally separate, even though right now it might not be as divergent, but it's on a trajectory uh, to become that way to where it will never uh, interact or yeah, breed with. Well, um, that's okay. Here's maybe some pretty heavy stuff here. Um, all right. The problem is you used to have like kind of one the biological species concept, and that was kind of the definition everybody used. And this is what a species is, what makes a species, and, you know, for whatever. And now you don't really have that. Now you have multiple different competing species definitions and concepts. There isn't just one species concept that everybody uses. Currently, the FAD, and it's, it is kind of what it is, the phylogenetic species concept is the one that most people use now. It is not the only one, though. No. That is the flavor of the month, and by month I mean, you know, some decades, but it's like it's not necessarily the be-all, end-all of everything. And it has quirks in it, and it's like that phylogenetics don't believe in subspecies. No particular reason why. It's just like it's almost like a religion. It's in the, just like we just don't believe in it. It's like they don't believe in the rank of subspecies. Why? What does that I mean? It's Why? Like, it's just, yeah. Yeah. I can't. You can't get a straight answer. So when you read, it's an inherent cooked-in bias in papers written at that, with that mindset, though, because oftentimes, you know, uh, uh, Leslie Rollins does a lot of great work with pythons and DNA testing them and all that, and has done probably some of the best work of anybody on the subject. But he ascribes to that uh, belief system and that species definition. But it kind of makes papers that are almost intentionally misleading in that what the paper sets out to do is like, okay, well, here's all these putative subspecies, these potential subspecies that people are bad about, and the paper presents it as if it's going to, you know, validate or invalidate these subspecies. Newsflash, they always invalidate the subspecies because they don't believe in the idea of a subspecies. Never found a subspecies they validated once. Why? Because they don't believe that subspecies should exist at all. But the paper never comes out and says, we just don't believe in the concept of a subspecies. It never says that. So it creates the false impression that there was never any distinction. There was just much to do about nothing. This is exactly the same as Darwin is exactly the same as a coastal carpet. Indistinguishable, which is, of course, ridiculous. Right. But <laughs> hmm. they don't they, – if it doesn't meet this arbitrary set of criteria that just people who worked on this particular paper made up because there is no rule as to how much weight to get the genetic side of it at all, they just make up make up a number, and if it's under that, it's a it's nothing, and if it's over that, it's a different species. So that's why they come up with you know Imbricata, full species, Bradley, full species, and apparently can't tell any of the other carpet pythons apart at all. It's a, <laughs> a subspecies. All the well, same. That's the, that's the official conclusion that they're indistinguishable, and they all should be released below them. Same snake. Inland carpets, obviously, the same thing as a Darwin. I mean, it's it's not. It's very different, but it's like because it doesn't meet some magical threshold, which it missed by one tenth of one percent. For the record, they set the magic number at five percent, and it came in at four point nine. Therefore, you can't tell the parts. Yeah, it's like you know, it's 
there's the belief system of the people doing the paper factors into the results, and that's not really you don't think of science working that way, but people have their own biases and their beliefs. And if you just don't believe a subspecies exists, you're just not ever going to find one that you believe in, are you? You're either going to elevate no. to a full species or sink it. And it's nothing. It's like because you just don't believe in that as a taxonomic rank. But that's a not believing in a subspecies as a taxonomic rank is a philosoph that is not a scientific position. That's a philosophical position. I just right. don't believe in this. It's like, well, you know, that's well, that's that's philosophy, really. That's not really, you know, I like the idea of subspecies because you do get these animals that, you know, carpet pythons are a great example that we have this wide variation, wide range with a ton of variation, and it gives you some tool to note the very obvious regional distinct, regionally distinct forms, short of being a full species. Right. You, know, you can say, well, a coastal carpet is not the same as that Darwin carpet and it is not the same as that inlet carpet. It gives you some mechanism for drawing a little bit finer resolution and stuff. Say, well, these are a distinct regional population. All a subspecies is a distinct regional population of another species. Like, right. this, is a, you know, this is a subset of this. It's not, it still is that species, but it's you know, kind of giving it a, a formal kind of a recognition that there is some distinction there, whereas when you don't have that, it just creates this ridiculous assumption that that's all the same. You can't tell any of these carpet five miles apart. It's all just carpet snake, man. It's all the same. <laughs> like, it's like, it's, you know, it's, you know, anybody that's ever kept, oh, I don't know, thousands of carpet flies on for a couple of decades is like, they're very different. Like, these are, you know, different animals. They may not be mm. tremendously different, but they are, they are distinctive. They're different enough. I mean, yeah, but it, I don't know. You're totally like you're, you're you're covering your eyes and ignoring one whole class of science, and still saying that you're coming out with a, a an accurate paper. It's kind of bogus to me. So yeah, it kind of makes a, it creates a false impression. It's like yeah, all the um, papers always like if it's anything you know. Look at the olive pythons. Say hey, these uh, baronies should be a full species. Great. But if they didn't meet some magical threshold, they'd have just said, "Oh, it's the same as a friggin' regular olive." It's like, well, it's not the same. It's a different thing. It's like it might not be. I, I used to be really get hung up on this sort of stuff, and I used to get pissed about it and get all frustrated. Yeah. And now I don't care as much because I've come to the conclusion that snakes don't really care what we call them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, True. I love reading yeah. papers and I love reading books and I like writing books. I like reading and writing and doing all this stuff and researching and all that, but, you know, those snakes seem very unconcerned with what we call them. Um, <laughs> they don't read books. They don't They don't really care. It's like, you know, a jungle carpet is always going to be a jungle carpet. It's a, you know, if you choose to not recognize Cheney as a valid subspecies, and I can make a strong argument that that's the one that you probably should get rid of, it's still not a coastal carpet. It's still mm-hmm. a distinct regional subset of coastal carpet. It's still a distinct regional form that exists with, in this exact area right here and nowhere else, really. And whether or not it rises to the level of giving it a formal binomial name or trinomial name, that the snakes don't care. It doesn't stop. I mean, if, if, if officially jungle carpets became not a subspecies anymore, and there are those that would love to do that, and it would all just be, you know, whatever, would it stop? Would you just start breeding randomly to coastal carpets? Because well, officially they're the same snake, so what the hell, right? God, it's so different. <laughs> you know it. You know, an IJ. The only genetic work that's really been done shows that I everything north of say Karanda 
is the same, including New Guinea. So I have all the carpets in the Cape, York Peninsula, and northern jungles, and IJs are genetically, there's hardly any difference. But are you going to breed an IJ to a jungle? And no, those are pure whatever. It's like, no, because it's obviously a different snake. It's like it may not have uh-huh. genetically wandered very far from the, from you know, when it, uh, it was last separated from its Australian relatives, but it is obviously a different thing. It's on right. a separate evolutionary trajectory, which is how I got off on this tangent in the first place. One species definition that is sometimes used is that, you know, well, these you can justify classifying something as a separate species, even if it hasn't changed all that much, because it is clearly on its own separate on its evolutionary way. trajectory, and it, nothing will change that. I.e., it lives on this island now and is no longer has any hope in hell of any contact with its, with its original ancestral population, thus it's on its own separate evolutionary path at this point. And maybe it hasn't gone that far down that path, but it is clearly on that path. And that, uh-huh. you know, it, it's, but that you're, then you're getting into like the philosophy of this kind of stuff. Taxonomy is, it is science, but there's a little bit of art to it too. Opinions, uh, people's preconceived opinions, notions, biases, and kind of an underlying belief system on these sorts of philosophy on these things play into it heavily. It is not, it's not mathematics where it's just like, you know, you two and two is always going to give you four. Whether you like the number four doesn't make a damn bit of difference. How you feel that day doesn't make any difference. But if you had coffee that morning or you're really tired from the night before, you will still get four if you add two and two, no matter what. It's always fucking four. It doesn't right. really matter. It's very subjective. Like, this is more subjective than that. It's a little bit of art into it. I mean, it's like it's you're trying to paint a picture of how things got to be the way they are, and you draw on all these evidence. Some of those are pretty hard, tangible things, and some of them are not. And it's, you're trying your best to, to come up with your best conclusion, but it's inherently you know, a flawed sort of thing. Right. Uh, so, but snakes don't care. <laughs> nah, <laughs> yeah, right. Mine don't. They don't even have ears. They don't really have external ears. They're really not listening to much. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I, I, you said, I didn't get a chance to stop you when you said it, but you said that is, is the white lips and ring pythons actually in the same genus now, or that's just not well, official yet. Oh, they should be. Okay. That's how I go with it. Running low on time, but we're, uh, this will be my last rant on this. But uh, go for it. There is a, and I'll just say it: it's chicken shit, really. Um, there's a trend in taxonomy, and it's just really chicken shit. And they do this all the time. And and that is, they will write this exhaustive paper. You know, it's DNA, morphology, go every which way from Sunday. Prove something beyond any reasonable amount of, of doubt and then not do the change that is obviously needed. So in 2003, it was uncontrovertibly shown that green tree pythons were at least two different species, but they did not name the other species. They just, oh, it's two different snakes, but we're not going to name it. Then, you know, there's, uh, in 2008, uh, I reviewed it this morning again, actually, for this interview, but uh, Rollins and Donlin and a few other guys, uh, fantastic paper in 2008, a big phylogeny of the pythons, probably one of the most informative papers of the last decade for sure, uh, made all sorts of suggestions and didn't do anything with them. Uh, it's like, again, reference the previous paper, uh, Morelia viridis north, Morelia viridis south, a separate species, and didn't bother to name them. Uh, you know, talking about all these sorts of things, you know, it's like that. It's like to go all the work and prove that something is a different species and then don't give it a name and then have to turn around and get pissed when, like, guys like Ray Hoser 
name a species. Like, you did all the work, you didn't name it, and then somebody else, it's like you just handed somebody a complete paper, all I do is put a name on it. It's like, why didn't they just name the damn thing? Right. And I don't get it. It's like, <laughs> and all I can figure is that it's like they're so worried about being proven wrong by somebody later, they just don't ever do it. And you see it all the time. Uh, same, it's the same group of guys a lot of times who work on a lot of these papers and everything. The scrub python paper clearly shows, yeah, barnegs and southerns, different species, don't split them. But they do all the work, don't split them. Poser comes in, names them. Chondros, same thing. It's like over uh, and over and over again that he's having. It's like, look, if you've done the work, you figured it out. It's like, name the friggin' snake. You know, it's like, it, it's crazy. I don't know why that he's happening. But uh, it, huh. in that 2008 paper, it said, with no mincing of words, basically, that Leopython should be synonymized with Bothrochylus. Bothrochylus, at a genetic level, those snakes belong in the same genus. And Bothrochylus mm-hmm. is the older name, as the appears in the record first. So you would ixnay on uh, Leopython, and all the white lips would dump into Bothrochylus with the ring python. But did they formally make that change? Nope. It's like they... It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, the DNA evidence has been done in 2002. In 2002, so what's that? 14 years ago, there's a paper right. that showed clearly that all the lysis are different species. That the eastern and western water pythons should probably be full species. Maclos pythons are obviously not water pythons. Sapu pythons <laughs> and Dunn's pythons should be full species. And Baroni should be a full species. 14 years later, nobody's done anything with it. It's like, oh, look. These are all totally separate, but then we're not going to formally elevate them to full species status for no clear reason. Wow. Uh, it, it drives you, it drives you crazy. <laughs> all those wow. are why? They're all different. Now. I don't know why. It's crazy. It's well, like it's running crazy. a triathlon and quitting at the finish line. It's like, and we're good. <laughs> wait, no, just, 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 yeah, just cross like the damn line. <laughs> you grew the last, like, 50 feet or whatever. If you yeah, you're like, I'm good. No, no. <laughs> The, the <laughs> and then they wonder why some people come in and steal the naming rights because, oh, well, they just left it in there. And five years later, somebody else named it after using all of your work. You basically. I'd be so pissed. Yeah, done. It's it would happen it's once. Hard to, I have a hard time being sympathetic to that. I don't agree with that yeah. practice of just stealing naming rights to something that someone else did the work, but it's like, why didn't they just do that? <laughs> it's been a problem. I don't understand. I think it's bad. It's like, it's like I'm gonna leave my I'm gonna leave my brand new car sitting out in front of my house with the key windows rolled down, the keys in it, leave it running for like a week straight. Oh. If somebody steals oh it, my god, it's mad. gone. Yeah. Oh my Damn god, it's it. gone. I can't believe that happened. It's like, what? It's crazy. I, I can't believe they did that. I mean, what the hell do you think is gonna happen? I don't. You know, it, it's crazy. But, but you know. I don't know. That's for those guys to worry about. The snakes are what the snakes are, and it, whether you choose to use this name or that name it doesn't really make a damn bit of difference. I mean, it's not. Things are distinct or they're not, and it's and those lines. Taxonomy is just a bunch of imaginary boxes that we right. Because really, the enormity and the complexity of nature is so vast that our little tiny primate brains can't get our brain around it at all. So we divide <laughs> it up into imaginary little boxes that we call species. So you break off a manageable size chunk. Oh, that's a carpet python. I can understand that. Because the, right. the totality of the entire natural world is to make our little monkey brains explode. We can't get our brain around it. So we, we carve it up in these artificial constructs that don't really exist called species. The species is not a static thing. It changes. It changes over time. And 
it's constantly changing. The world is constantly. Nothing is ever standstill. Everything only appears to stand still because we don't live very long. So it appears as though things are static and biologically static. And in fact, it's just an artifact of our very short lifespans. You know, ranges of animals are like undulating like an amoeba. They're expanding. They're contracting. They're shrinking. They're growing. They're they're moving around with the habit because the climate is always because the climate's always changing, not just the vegetation changing. And animals, the look and the paint job, all these things are constantly changing at various paces. It's never, it only seems like they're con- it's constant because we, our little time on the earth as individuals to look at this stuff is so fleeting that it creates the false impression that things are static. But it's all, it's all just nonsense. It's all just constantly, it's always constantly in motion, everything, and all these things. So it's like a jungle carpet in the 100 years will be slightly, in a while, to be slightly different than a jungle carpet 100 years ago in the past. Because right. they're changing, because their habitat, their range will be slightly different, and nothing is ever standing still in mm. any way. It's, it's just so it's, you know, you try to put them in these little boxes, but it's it's just to help us understand things and get a handle on it, but it's not really, it doesn't matter really that much. I mean, right. It's, a, it's just a tool for interpretation, for us to help interpret things. Yeah, that makes sense. How closely related, <laughs> how closely related are pythons to boas? Uh, I mean, they are both basal macrostomatin snakes, so in that regard, they are you could they are related, but not as closely related as you'd like to think. I mean, you're looking at a at a split, you know, somewhere, you know, in the 65 plus million years ago, and that's Jeez. a hell of a long time that they yeah. were separate. Now they are. They largely are mutually exclusive. They do the same jobs and the same types of habitats on different places, but you don't really find them in the same place. You rarely ever, I mean, there's only a couple places where you can find a bow and a python in the same place. And really, that's really only, you know, where you find Candoya, little tiny Candoya and like New Guinea and a few other islands and stuff. I mean, you don't really, there's very little overlap because they're the same type of animal doing the same type of job. Um, but yeah, no, that's a that's a pretty ancient split. Okay, so qu- quite quite a long time ago. Okay. As far as how different, you know, there's you know how different genetically they have wandered off that I wouldn't really be able to speak to. But uh, the the split point between those two lineages is very very old. Right. Okay. So hmm. you're not going to be breeding your red tail boa to your carpet python. It's not going to work. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but you could read a Dumeril's bone or a red tail and it probably wouldn't work though. <laughs> oh God. Owen's uh, ready to breed his uh his um I guess the, the Dominicans together. Yeah, your Dominicans with yeah. the coastal. He's he's ready. No, 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 no. Oh God. No. <laughs> no. Have an even bigger other. brown snake have an even bigger brown snake that wants to be on you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah right. Eat lizards. Yeah, I want, I want yeah. this carpet python. If I could make a carpet python look like this, but like to paint its cage with urate, that'd be what my goal is. Yeah, that'd be, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> Please, let's make that. Oh. God. Only uh. bearded dragons. Yeah, great. Let's do it. Maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe before uh, we uh, we end it, you could speak a little bit about. I got a lot of people asking about Candoya. Um, and I know you that's have a whole amassed other, that's a whole other quite, show there. That's a whole <laughs> other episode. Yeah. You you you're working with quite a group of them, correct? I mean Um I don't know how many I have. Is that a lot? 
Yeah, that's a lot. Can't tell me anything. You don't have anything. Like, I don't think I could even guess with it. Probably eight or nine. I mean, I I don't know what do I got. Probably twenty-five or thirty of them. I don't know, but something like that. How long is that many? I count them. Well, all wild caught snakes are hard to breed. I mean, you get. Captive bred snakes are much more amenable. Each generation of captive breeding, you're getting more domesticated. Your you know, your animals are calmer, and they were their parents were at least willing to screw in a box, and that matters. And then each generation, that gets a little easier. When you get something that lived its whole life in a tree, and then you pluck it out of that tree, and then you expect it to eat a non-native European domesticated rodent, and then breed in a little plastic box, that's a whole lot more difficult. If the animal, you know, because it's more stressful. So getting that first F1 generation is. Uh, considerably more difficult than breeding captivated animals. So you're not mm-hmm. likely to, with trying to establish some of these species in captivity, you're not likely to just get one pair and then all is going to go awesome. Better off getting a group and stuff. So, I mean, no, I've got, uh, I've got Pulse and I, and that's another absurd taxonomic thing. Like Pulse and I and Carinata, Candoya Carinata, Carinata and Candoya Pulse and I are sub, separate subspecies, but they, they're from different planets. Like, one's like a four-foot, heavy-bodied terrestrial snake, and one is like a tiny arboreal snake that never exceeds 100 grams. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> what in the hell? Whoever thought these should be subspecies of one species and not full species, really, that's just completely baffling to me. Right. You know, it's like they literally, like, yeah, it, it's absolutely insane. Like, they, like, an adult, adult female Candoya carinata are about, can maybe, maybe, maybe eat a fuzzy mouse if you can get him to eat a rodent, which you usually can't. A, a small fuzzy. That's the biggest thing it could possibly eat because they're literally that tiny. And a pulse and I will eat a medium rat. I mean, it's like, wow. it's like literally like literally like 50 times larger. It, it's, it's insane. And one's terrestrial and one's completely arboreal. I don't know what in the hell they were thinking at all that these are, that these should be anything, uh, but uh, and their distribution is there's just like uh, millions of miles apart from each. It doesn't even make any sense. But uh, now I've got a group of uh, white pulse and I. Uh, everybody wants the uh, quote unquote Isabel Island phase, but the, that white color phase, background color phase, curses more than one island. Right. Mm-hmm. I've got I think I got six of them. I might breed some this year. I've got I got some bright red ones. So I've got some white. I got four or five white ones. With a bright white back. Those are actually U.S. captured bred. And not like nice. captive bred in the sense that a gravid would drop some babies in captivity, but they were bred before they started importing again. I actually bred them. Some old ones and stuff. Uh, uh, the ones I really like the most, I think, are the Candoya Bibberni Australis. Uh, and they are, uh, they kind of remind you of the little tiny Candoya Carinata Carinata, the little tiny guys, except for they're way bigger. Mm-hmm. Like they're, you know, Sometimes two foot well, males can get two feet long, and the females can get like four and a half feet long, and eat a little weaned rat. I mean, they're oh my they're, god, yeah, they're real arboreal, and they are really placid. Like they're just like right out of the gate, they're just wild caught. They're just mellow snakes. They're really slow moving, really docile, and they eat rodents. Like I've had, I don't know, I got about a dozen of them. Every single one of them just ate a mouse. Like <laughs> it's like I never had to feed them a lizard or nothing. Like I don't know. Like, uh, every one of them, they just, like, yeah, let them settle in for a little while. Don't stress them out. And just chuck a rodent in there, and they just eat it. All right. Uh, because they at least recognize mammals as something you might want to consider eating at some point. 
where some of the more smaller forms like the Carinata Carinata are kind of obligate lizard eaters, and then you really have a hard time. Yeah. With them. Yeah, they're they're great. Are they pretty straightforward to take care of as far as temperatures and Oh my god, they're easy, easy, easy. They don't like a lot of heat. They kind of like a little cooler. Right. So if you were ever going to, I mean, I'm obviously, we've talked about this before, I'm not a huge proponent of the no basking spot, just let them sit at 80 degrees in a tub, kind of a no, no heat. Right. That actually yeah. looks good with these guys. Like, they don't, they will shut oh. the heat. They don't want them to do it, no heat. They're metabolic. There's a little bit of research that shows their metabolic rate's a little bit lower, so cooler temperatures, not cold, but like, right. you know. A flat 80-81 work just fine. Don't feed them very big meals. Don't feed them all that often. They don't grow fast anyway. It won't do you any good. Um, right. They're slow eating. They just, they're just in a little slower gear. But they do you – know, they'll never use the heat, even if you eat them, feed them. They're, they're just – unless they're gravid, I mean, that's it. They're not uh, – they – yeah, so they're actually really super easy. Um Viper boas are kind of the odd man out, and that they seem to be considerably more difficult to keep alive. And I've had terrible luck with viper boas. Uh, and they used to be like you know, thirty-five dollars for imports, and now they're like one hundred seventy-five dollars for imports. They're hard to yeah. find. They yeah. don't seem. Yeah, they Matt seem to be. Yeah, they seem to be harder to keep. At least for me. Sometimes I have like bad luck with a species, and you know, and, and other people don't though. So I don't know whether my experience is indicative of. Everybody else as a whole, but uh, from what I've gathered, other people have had other problems with them as well. But they are not quite as easy as uh, some of the others. The Pulse and I, the the uh, the Carinata Carinata, if you can get to meet rodents, are super easy. There's a population on the Wago Island uh, of Carinata Carinata that get a tiny bit bigger, and mm-hmm. I mean a tiny bit bigger. And the, the females might get 18 inches long, and the males might get 14 inches long. Oh, and my God. I've got a pair of them that eat rodents really, really good. Uh, the female will eat a large hopper mouse, and the male will eat a uh, peach fuzzy as, like, full-grown adults, huge, large adults. And they, wow. the Wago Island ones uh, come in a couple different color phases. You don't see in the mainland ones so much, and they're noticeably larger but still tiny. You know, you're, my, my large female Wago Carinata is probably, you know, 100 and 10 grams, 100, 110 grams of a huge adult female, 100 grams. Wow. And the male's probably, and the male is obviously a, a big breeder male, size male, and he's probably, you know, 50 grams. So he's wow. literally, you know, the males are reproducing at the size of like, we'll put it this way, like the mainland Carinata Carinata are adults and will come in gravid the size of a hatchling day old carpet bite. Oh, wow. That's smiley. Really? <laughs> so when you get or like a, more like a Brettles python. So if you see like a Brettles python right out of the egg, that would be an adult female Carinata Carinata. It's that they're that small. Wow. wow. So if you can imagine the babies that come out of those, yeah, good luck with that. That's like pygmy pythons mean, almost. They're Jeez. worms. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> they are. I had a litter of I had a litter of Wago Island Carinata, born, and none of them made Did it. You lose and them. I'm like now I. I assist fed them, but I think my mistake was, and they every time I assist feed them, they just die. Um, I didn't let them go a long time and wither away, but they only weigh two and a half grams. Oh my! Well, put it this way: I had a litter of I had a litter of six of them, or yeah. seven, six of them, and the entire litter I couldn't weigh them on my scale because they didn't weigh enough to move the scale. So I weighed the entire <laughs> litter together. The entire litter together weighed fourteen grams. Jeez. Oh God! So, so 
six, seven babies collectively, or six babies collectively weighed half of the weight of one baby carpet pile. They're that small. They're even smaller wow. than pretenders. And I got wow. babies this year, and they suck, too, I'll tell you. I got, like, a little <laughs> little girl, so. You know, it, but I should have, I, I, my mistake, I think, with the Carinata was that I was trying to, like, force feed them in the sense of, like, pushing the meal all the way down to their stomach so they wouldn't spit it out. Uh-huh. And uh, that's pretty traumatic on something that's that tiny, and I think it just was too much. Uh, like the pygmies, if you mouse tail them or whatever, you can get a little section of mouse tail and you put that in there. If you shove it in until you're right up to where there's still, you know, whatever bit you're pitting, there's like a quarter inch sticking out because that was the part that was in your fingers. Mm-hmm. They'll struggle for a minute, and nine times out of ten, they'll just say, ah, screw it, and they'll just swallow it themselves the rest of the way. Right. If it goes in far enough, they'll just finish an elongated meal, they'll just finish it. And the Carinata didn't seem to want to do that. They resisted mm-hmm. like crazy and really wanted to spit it out. So, I'll. Try to get more. I'll try to make more of them, and then if I get, you know, if I'm fortunate enough again, or unfortunate enough, depending on how you look at it, I guess I'll try something different. <laughs> <laughs> They're the most awesome snake. They'd be so popular if you could have an, a, a totally arboreal, super camouflage tree boa that's just awesome with a crazy viper-like head that only ever weighed 40 grams. Like, who wouldn't have a bunch of those? It's awesome. Yeah. Except they only eat lizards. That's that like, the problem. <laughs> If lizard eaters were that easy, it's like we'd all have a whole bunch of Madagascar leaf nose snakes and all kinds of cool stuff. But it's like we don't because yeah. they suck. Because right. you know, let me keep plugging away. Somebody's got to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd be like oh, Jeff yeah. Murray. He just uh, feeds some lizards, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's cheating. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, that's, that's, where's the sport in that, right? I know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm not, uh, not, uh, not gonna feed them lizards. But uh, I never, I never fed a snake a lizard in my life. Uh, not <laughs> one. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I got entire litter of Dominicans. <laughs> I would. I mean, I suppose I just haven't ever done it. I mean, I'm not. It's not a moral thing, really. I mean, I'm not. Like, not that I just food food. I've never yeah. done it. I don't ever, you know, because it's like I don't want to give something a taste for something it's not gonna be able to get regularly. I mean, right. I've got a great trick for that now. Anyway, that's gotten three of my seven pygmy pythons eat unscented mice after just a couple of meals. So, and that is, I stumbled onto, that uh, uh, when we we're in Western Australia. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Finding Simpsons pythons and Karangini gourds, and there were all these velvet geckos all over the place. One boy caught a Simpsons python and a velvet gecko on the same rock face. And <laughs> wouldn't you know it, they're exactly the right size. Clearly, these Simpsons pythons are eating these geckos. Right. And there's Simpsons pythons in the same area. Those geckos are everywhere. These geckos are obviously on the menu for both Simpsons and Pretenders. So, and then I was, I sold some uh, Antaricia to a lady in Reno who bred these geckos. And so somehow the conversation came up. That, oh, it's all again. We caught some of those. Like, oh, yeah. She said she had a trouble feeder, and she wrapped it in some of the gecko skin, and it ate it. And I'm like, really? How'd you get the gecko skin? Apparently, velvet geckos are like the only gecko that doesn't eat their shed skin. They just oh, drop them on the floor. They don't eat them. So I literally have a pair of Australian velvet geckos, but I don't even care about breeding them. I just harvest the skin. I'm like a skin farmer. I put them in a little deli. I do that all the time, and I collect the skins and put them in a deli cup. 
and then I can take a pinky mouse, wash it with other things, so it's no longer stinks like a mouse. Then while it's still slightly there, roll it up with a little bit of gecko skin, a velvet gecko, roll it up like a little taquito. And so I say that it's a long, it, I've literally wrapped it, descented it, and then wrapped it in the exact species of gecko that these things are keyed in to look for in the wild. If you of a bitch, guess what happens? They eat it. Wow. Here's your tip of the day. Get yourself some yeah. geckos. Yeah. <laughs> geckos. They bark and chase each other around and stuff. Yeah, that's a, uh, it's not universally. I mean, I got five out of six children's five months even the first try doing that. One still messing with me, but five out of six in the first try for him to eat anything is pretty awesome. That, that's not that's bad at all. Good, yeah. Yeah. And Can I buy some gecko skin? <laughs> the piggy pythons, uh, I had uh, none in the first try, and then I had two on the second try, and then on the third try, the two that ate on the second try with the gecko skin just ate onto the piggy. So literally one, two, three. It was like mouse tail, gecko scented pinky, unscented pinky, and they're off to the races. They eat pinkies out of my hand after three meals. And that's six months of cramming tails in my throat. Now I've got a bunch of others that are messing with me. But I can think right. of having like three of them on unscented rodents in like, you know, in like five weeks is pretty much, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's pretty good. <clears throat> so give yourself some of those. Cool. So, yeah, I need. I have a ma- I have a male prothensis, but I don't have a female. But I guess if I'm breeding, well, I'm gonna have to get some geckos. I, I think I had oh. 7.2 or something absurd. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> on the prothensis, on all the ones that are eating are males. I only have uh, like a few females. Well, I mean, I'll have more just bad luck with the with the uh, sex ratio, as often happens. So, yeah. Right. Right. Cool. Well, I guess that's about it for another episode. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd say so. <laughs> right. There's a lot to digest there for sure. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully nobody's head exploded or anything like that. <laughs> cool. I don't, I don't like think that fell, fell asleep more than likely. But... Nah. Nah. Well, Our yeah. Chat... Well, maybe. I don't think uh, so. A little, a little science <laughs> is good for you. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks as always, Nick. Uh, appreciate uh, you coming on and chat with us, and you know, welcome back anytime. All right. Until next time, I'll talk to you guys later. All right. All right. Bye, Bye Nick. Nick. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to uh, digest in that. You know, like I told trying you, to get your nerd in. on. <laughs> you're trying to slip yeah. in a can. You're trying to compress a whole Candoya show. Into like the final five minutes of a Nick Mutton show. Have, I know, man. Have you learned? Have you learned nothing? <laughs> five years worth of what we've done. I mean, yeah. come on. Ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. The hell's wrong I, with you? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I keep getting people wanting to know about Candoya, and I hate talking to people that I don't know about something that I don't know. So I figured if I so talk to Nick. And he gives We're me a little bit of a crash course. Episode. Yeah, but if I'm talking to somebody about Candoya that I don't, you know what I mean, that we don't know, I don't know. I just feel uncomfortable, if that makes sense. I guess it don't make sense. It's just my crazy no, brain. Really. <laughs> <laughs> just just in my crazy head. But, yeah. but Zero, you've been quiet this entire time. Shut the hell up. Thank yeah. you. Quiet. So, <laughs> quiet. No you. Roxy, no Dexter. You need to be quiet. I know. Yeah. He's been so good sleeping here. And I'm like, because Jim's not here right now. So I'm actually doing it in the living room. 
So Zero's been crashing and sleeping the entire time. And now, for some reason, he's awake and believes there are intruders around. So if he starts barking, (laughs) I'd kill him because he's so good. But, yeah, anyway, I digress. (laughs) It was Uh, a good episode. I enjoy learning the science aspect. Gets me back into my nerdy, you know, biology kind of college stuff. So always love it. Yeah, just the – you know, just especially, I guess, since I'm in the mindset of the different species and stuff like that, and you know, trying yeah. to uh, to get uh, I mean, I, a, a nice collection. I mean, you're going like, to, yeah, I mean, you're going to Australia without me, so I mean, <laughs> we could talk about that. Oh <laughs> uh, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, found out about that on air. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't realize that. Till later, a little earlier, either. I don't know. <laughs> I, guess, uh, I guess I'm going. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, so. <laughs> um. Okay. <laughs> There's really nowhere else uh, to go with that. Yeah. You yeah. have the awkward silences. All right. But yeah. You don't have a choice. I'm I'm paying your way, and you can pay me back at another date. Well, I guess I'm not going to argue with that. I don't say no to that. I mean, like, like, I'm taking you, and I'm paying your way. Well, all right. It's like, no. It's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Well, then Uh, this way, when you go and you come back, we can do, like, the whole, like, I guess I'll interview you on your trip. And all that fun yeah. stuff and silent and and I wonder if you could hear the hate in my voice as we do the interview. <laughs> so you'll be uh, a little, we'll a little, yeah, yeah, little. Oh, yeah. dude, I saw, uh, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> that know. fucking wonderful next question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know, who cares about your goddamn who cares trip? About that? <laughs> yeah. God, I hope you killed by crocodile. But no, I mean what? <laughs> So, uh, well, we'll no, see. No, that's cool. It'll be <laughs> we'll fun. See. Yeah, for sure. Sending you um, a cardboard cutout of me. Like, I'm <laughs> going to talk to Howard and have a cardboard cutout of me made, and you have to bring it with you. Oh, so, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. every, uh, if I if I stop at a tree or something, or, you know. You got to like, put it up and set it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Always. Holding a yep. blackheaded python. Check this out. Perfect. <laughs> just like that. Like, oh, and caught a blackhead. Yeah. Cardboard's just laying on the ground and the blackhead is <laughs> on it. Yeah. yeah. Done. Perfect. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But, uh, I, um, what else was going on? There was a whole bunch of, I don't know. Have you been following anything that's been going on? I, I really haven't. Uh, Kind of out of the way. I got, I got, I got sucked into the whole Bolins thing that's kind of appearing online. And if and if you haven't seen it or you have seen it, there's no need to get into it in the show. I, I would just kind of say it's something else that if you are going to get into a species, um, do your research. Know what the hell you're getting into, and above all, if you are going to get into snakes or exotics, you need to find a veterinarian in your general area that deals with snakes and exotics. I don't give a shit if you have to drive an hour. My veterinarian is the same one Eric uses, Dr. Adam Dennish out of Philadelphia. Yeah, he's I awesome. Drive the, I will drive the hour to see him. 
to bring my snakes to him because I trust him above all the other people I've found who will see exotics but don't specialize in them. So that's just yeah. what you got to do. And also, your vet might be uh, a university, and you might be paying out the ass, but guess what? It, 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 this is what happens. I mean, for a lot of people that do these home treatment stuff, I'm all for trying to treat it at home before you lug the snake all the way down to the vet office and stress it out even more and spend a bunch of money, but you got to know when you're over your, in over your head and when to call mm-hmm. it and get it done because the animal's life's in danger. If, if half the people that did this with reptiles did that with dogs or cats, then everybody would be arrested. It's just like you, know, you guys got to understand that. You know, if you had an injured dog you didn't take to the vet and pictures of it appeared on the Internet, cops would be knocking on your door. And it's shitty that we're not held to that standard with reptiles, but, you know, you, you, you should. If your animal needs to go to the vet, take it to the vet. I don't give a shit how much it costs. You spent the money to buy the animal, you should be willing to spend the money to keep it alive. So. Yeah. You know, speaking of, I mean, I've been to the vet the past two days. Um, yeah. And, you know, what sucks is that he couldn't see me together, um, which is, you know, which is fine, just the way it worked out. And he said that if there, you know, obviously if there was a cancellation or whatever and he could make it happen, he would, but he couldn't. Yeah. But um, the cool thing that I look at is it's an opportunity, especially if you have somebody that's uh, an exotic vet that is, you know, that that keeps exotics, uh, which which we're lucky enough to uh, to have. And I know Matt goes to him as well. But um, Doc, Doc D, he's the he's the lead veterinarian for the Elmwood Park Zoo. So there have yeah. days where I'm bringing my snake to him. He's like, I just did surgery on a jaguar. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so it's like an actual cat, a jaguar. So it's that he'll it's the only guy I will go to. So yeah, and, I, and of course he, I have a different vet for the dog because. He, the dog is a dog. He can go many places. Snakes right. can only go one place. So yeah. Well, I use him for my dogs too. But um, he uh, <laughs> he uh, you know it's like a I get a lesson every time I go there, which is awesome. You know, because I was telling you before the show, it's like you know sometimes at least for myself when when um, I'm a little nervous about you know. Uh, I guess breaking the snake, you know what I mean? Or, you know, it's like, you're mm-hmm. afraid to do you, how do you open up the mouth the correct way? And is it okay to like, sort of like, you know, uh, you know, jab the, you know, the, the lips and, you know, all these different things yeah. that, you know, is it, is it okay to sort of push on the bottom? And, you know, if you, if you're feeling at, at how to feel for, you know, what's going on inside of it. And, you know, he took me back and, when he looked at the x-ray, he kind of um, was showing me uh, the internal layout of the organs and everything. And it's one thing when you read it in a book, but it's totally different when you're actually looking at your snake on the, you know what I mean? It's, it's just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at least for me, it was different. And um, I mean, I know it was a little pricey, but I, I look at it as it's uh, as part of an education of, of keeping, keeping these animals well, as well, you know? So. And, and these are the same kind of things where people don't understand how much it – people rarely ever see past the price of the animal and how much it costs to feed that animal, house that animal, and keep that animal alive. That's yeah. why you end up having you know, $2,000 animals that are kept in plastic sweater boxes underneath somebody's bed 
or yeah. on like the floor with like a human heat pad as their heat source. I mean, it, we've all done it. That's how we all started. And then the thing is, you need to learn that that's not the acceptable way to do it, especially if you're going to keep a large collection. That's why you always move the racks and cages and blah, 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 to, you know, computer systems and all that other stuff. So, you know, the, all that stuff needs to factor in. So that $200 snake, it's not really a $200 snake. It's like a $400 snake, if you think about it. Right. So if you're, un- if you're willing to spend the money on a $4,000 animal, but are unwilling to spend the money at a vet's at a vet's office, or unwilling to find a vet that will treat the animal. What the hell are you doing with it? Yeah. Like, why even like that? That's ridiculous. Yeah, especially with a species. Not that any species is is different than another, but when you're a when bowl? you're working with bolins, I mean, you're talking bowl. about a a three thousand dollar snake and not that the money may the you know the money is not the oh, factor yeah. but yeah if you're it could be a ten dollar corn snake you still should take it to a vet if it's got something wrong with it sure I mean, yeah absolutely yeah. it shouldn't be disposable but i guess what i'm saying is is that it, if you're a, somebody that's playing on that level you know what i mean it's it's you should be wanting to make sure that you have an animal that's going to be long lived. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would imagine, especially with Bolins, that the reason that you're trying to work with the species is you're trying to figure out, reproduce it, etc. Um, and you know, I guess even then, even if it's just, even if this is just as like you just want one because it's a dream species, it's a dream right. species. You're you're telling me you haven't read every single book that's out there, established everything, knowing what you need, talked to every idiot that's ever touched one, set right. up the cages correctly. But then what I'm saying is that you're telling me you have not looked for an exotic vet in your area. I'm about to spend the money on my dream species, and what the hell if this happens, that happens, your power could go out. You could get an RI. I want to take it to a vet. You gotta right. you gotta know where your vet is. Yeah, and, and that is something that I don't think pe- people just tend to not think about until the snake is like breathing out door. its mouth. With, exactly, and at that point, it's over. And, and again, I'm all for treating at home. I have a bunch of medication, and I have a bunch of stuff at my house to treat for snakes. Snake's getting a little gurgly. Cool. Here's a shot of Batril. We'll see how you do. If it's still not good in a few days, we're going to the vet. Yeah. And a lot of times, nine times out of ten – when I check on them again, it's cleared up and they want to eat. That's just how yeah, it goes. Well, but then there's that know, one time. Even even ahead of you know uh, you know me we actually we talked about this when I was at the vet office. You know he was saying yeah. something. I told him about the snake. The snake that I brought today um, is the uh, um, what do you call it? The uh, poster child um, one. And, you know, I got the snake with knowing that it had a history of R.I. Um, yeah. Uh, so for whatever reason, it de- it started to develop an R.I. I mean, you know, the reason that I brought it to the vet is because somebody, you know, they've already given it, um, you know, uh, Batril. So if Burned it built it up. up a tolerance to Batril, um, is it sensitive mm-hmm. to Batril? Is this something different? You know, you know, you do the standard, I, at least with me, I follow the, huh, 
if the snake is not right, maybe there's something in the husbandry. Let me bump up the heat. And if I don't see any kind of improvement, that's when I would say, okay, time to go to, uh, time to go to the vet. Uh, check it out. Yeah, you know? and you're completely correct. I mean, I had a snake that um, he got an RI. I took him to the vet. Nothing was really working, so we ended up moving through the drugs to amication. Amication killed it all. So then a couple right. of years go by. He, he he grows bigger. He breeds all this other stuff, and then he gets another RI. I mean, we're talking like four or five years apart. I take him to the vet. He looks at the vet records and goes, "You know what? Amication worked for him last time. Let's give him that." Cleared it up. Immediately. Right. By going right. to some other person who had been like, Batril works, and then we would have gone through the whole rigmarole, and the snake could have died in the meantime while we're trying to figure shit out. So, right. it, 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 nothing. I hate to break it to everybody, but none of us, unless you actually have, which the only one I can think of is WAPA, you actually have gone to vet school. None of <laughs> us are veterinarians. Yeah. And none of us have the ability to diagnose just by looking at it. Yes, we've seen it a million times. Yes, we can kind of kind of guess, but nothing beats going to a place where they're actually going to test it and do all the work. Now, I'm not saying that every veterinarian is going to help you. That's why you need to do your research and find your veterinarian that you trust that can work with your exotics and reptiles. Duh. I don't know why we have to explain this to people, but yeah. – that's that, that yeah, rule one. Like, I'm working on getting into snakes. Where's the vet? Done. Yeah. I remember um, he used to actually work. Uh, Dr. D used to actually work. Uh, he used to take care of the pet shop that was on Rising Sun Avenue. Um, mm-hmm. Because I remember talking to the uh, the people that worked there. And I was like, oh, he comes in here. I, he's the vet that does my dog. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, this is when I was just getting back in the snake. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so we have some pretty cool shows. Yeah, we have yeah. some pretty cool shows lined up um, in the uh, upcoming uh, episodes. Um, pretty excited to be talking to uh, Matt Turner. Um, Matt Turner is uh, known for his uh, at well currently blood pythons and short tails. I'm sure everybody has heard the Turner jungle bloodline. Um, so mm-hmm. he's not any, uh, he's not shy when it comes to, uh, you know, Morelia. He knows Morelia. I, yeah. Yep. I know he's worked with blackheads and, and stuff like that as well. So it'll be awesome to talk to him. Pretty excited that uh, Dan from uh, DM exotics uh, is coming back. Um, you know, Dan, works with uh some 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 very uh dare I say unusual species um he just uh he just has some he's just as one of the most um uh, I don't want to say weird uh but some of the species that he worked with are very hard to find not something you see every day in captivity and uh he's uh pretty successful with breeding them and keeping them and you know I know he works with different uh, species of scrubs and white mm-hmm. lips and uh, he also works with spilotes and all kinds oh, of geez. different colubrids and <laughs> yeah so uh that's awesome I'm, I'm i'm curious to hear of his you know his travels around indonesia and you know he was on the show way back in the in the early early days um but uh 
when we had no idea what we were doing and just kind of dancing around shit. Yeah. Yeah. Can we fix those? Can I please get a a redo on the scrub? Please. Can we just redo that episode? Um, <laughs> With Blake. Blake's episode. Yeah, please. Yeah. Just uh, help me. Help myself. Yeah. Um, we're also going to be doing a retick show. Um, yep. Uh, with uh, Josh Joshua Ortiz. Um, mm-hmm. He is uh, one of the uh, retick guys up at Nerd, um, but uh, he's uh, we met him when we went up there, uh, so it'd be uh, pretty interesting to talk with him. Um, what else? Who else do we got lined up? Of course, Matt Minitola. <laughs> yeah, You're he'll be back. Matt How can I forget back. him? Yep, he'll be coming back. Um, that's man, he's knocked it out of the park this season. Um, you know, Making luckily, up like chumps, dude. We're like, <laughs> we're like, we can't breed our carpet pythons because I bred these green trees by like letting them near each other. And we're like, God damn it! So, you know. dude, I I went to his house and uh, to pick up my uh, rodents. He's drooling and, over the what are the what, what's the retics he's got you drooling over right now? The Mancino, what the, what the hell are they? <laughs> They're the uh, uh, shit. Now you got that in my head. I can't think of the name. Mochachinos. Mochachinos. Thank you. The Mochachino like, tigers or whatever. Shut up. No, right, because forget you about. Like, you were like, oh my god. I'm like, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> Yo, Something about a Mochachino retic. You're all about them. Dude, they are. I'm telling you, man. They are. Freaking beautiful! They have to be one of the most beautiful pythons I've ever seen. Good lord, they are amazing. No, I don't want four yeah. of them. Just one of them. One, just one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're beautiful, man. Oh my god, they're insane. Um, and he also had um, the, uh, I guess it's um, what is it? An albi- uh, uh, an albino golden child, I believe it is. Well, yeah, Did it's he? like the one, the one that what's his name, uh, or uh, the one that oh, Balin, Balin picked the, up. The, the purple, Same type. The pur- yeah, purple yeah, golden he, child. You just picked that up. The purple albino golden child. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's another huh. one that's like beautiful. But uh, they're pretty. Yeah. yeah. Balin got a retick. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I talked to Howard. Howard's like, "What the hell is he going to do with this thing?" I'm like, "I have no idea." And he goes, "I don't think he even knows." So, yeah, you go. Balin got a retick. That's no. awesome. Um, but uh, not only that, I'm curious to just talk to Matt about his uh, Borneos and his uh, what he got going on with his Ocelot project. And he yeah. just had some. Uh, I was able to. Uh, I know people would probably like not want to do this, but I felt lucky enough to be able to go and uh, help him sex all those um, Borneos <laughs> and, <laughs> and Bloods. Um, <laughs> and uh, you wear a parka. Well, goddamn, man! The one like I—I I think I talked about this before. It bit the shit out of me. I thought I was a mouse or something. It wouldn't let go. I mean, uh, goddamn! That little son of a bitch hurt like, uh, dude. I've been bit by carpet scrubs. That hurt, you know. I couldn't get it off. It's always the tiny ones. Yeah, but uh, so yeah, some cool shows. Definitely. Then it will we'll, we'll take us up right to uh five year anniversary and then um Tennis Bar. 
and uh, Tinley Park. Yeah. So, nice. so it should be cool. Uh, yeah, I was thinking I didn't actually ask Rob about this, but I was thinking that Rob could interview us in the five year anniversary. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> uh, uh, are we allowed to see the questions before the no, show? No, no, no. We just let quiet. him make up the questions. He'll make oh, up the man. questions and he'll interview oh, us. Man. I think that would be cool. <laughs> oh man. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Yeah. So And and you know um, who will if I tell him what's happening, you know who will probably show up at two. So <laughs> yeah. See if I'm Rob will especially Rob love that. Yeah. You yeah, say his no. name. He's like Hozier. You don't say his name. We don't say yeah. his name anymore. He hears that. He listens. He listens to random episodes. Like he'll, I'll just walk into work and he'll be like, "So you did this, this, this?" I'm like, "What? The? When were you?" And so yeah, I mean, no, we we at any moment he could. We don't say his name. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we got some, uh, like I said, some cool episodes coming up. So uh, be uh, be tuning in and checking it out, and. Um, you know, I'll keep working on that list uh, that we got. Um, hopefully, uh, at some point, I can get a Candoya show going, and uh, we can uh, hit on some uh, Angolan pythons at some point. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it's so hard to come across somebody that actually works with them. Um, yeah. It'll be like it'll be like ring pythons in a couple of years, man. I'm telling you, nobody will have them. Except me and Matt. Everybody's going to want them. <laughs> and everybody will want them. You know? Be like, oh, my God. I can't have them, so I want them. Bumpy, so. bumpy ball pythons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not Owen. He's going to hold out. Nope. He'll take the happen. bumpy bumpy chondros. That's what he bumpy wants. Bumpy chondros for the win. Yep. Yes. All right. So, uh, let's wrap it up and get the heck out. Um Love it. Uh, check out Nick's uh, website, um, inlandreptile.com. I forgot to ask them about Herp Nation. You know, their podcasts are going too, so yeah. I don't know. Kind of sucks. But uh, well, we're still here. We're still here. <laughs> yeah. We're the only ones standing. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> we'll get into that later. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. All right, so check out our website, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Um, you can check us out on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, and uh, if you want to get in touch with us, question, comment, suggestion, uh, info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Listen to the show, Best Ways, iTunes. Um, you can listen to it on Blog Talk. Our page there is uh, the Blog Talk Radio slash moreliapythonradio.com um, and you can hear the show. I find it kind of awkward though to listen on Blog Talk. I was I trying to listen to, to old oh. <laughs> I was trying to listen to old episodes of Corrales Radio and cuz that for whatever reason oh, they're not on iTunes, but you can't fast forward yeah. and it's it's just a pain in the ass. So I recommend getting <laughs> a podcast app. iTunes is Download. the best. Yeah. Or you could do that too. Yep. Um, so let's see, da, 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 da. um, as far as myself, ebmorelia.com, uh, you can check out my website. Um, 
Citrus Tiger Head Albinos will be available real soon. Uh, for sure. They seem to be off to the races. So probably after I move um, and after Owen picks his and Chris picks his. Damn right. God damn right. <laughs> then we'll put them up. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. Um, Instagram, all EB Moralia. Uh, you can follow me there. And if you want to get in contact with me, the email is eric at ebmoralia.com. That's all I got. Cool. Uh, for me, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. The website's being updated. So, But the for sale page is completely up to date. Those are all the babies we have for sale. Uh, caramels, caramel jacks, and super caramel jacks, as well as a few other things are up there. Uh, you also go and look up at rogue reptiles at facebook.com. Give us a like. Again, there are for sale ads over there, as well as any news about our continuing projects, the next show I got is Tinley Park, Chicago. So we'll see everybody there. If you want an animal, it can be delivered to Tinley for free. Don't wait. Just buy it now. All right? That's all we got. So what we're going to say is thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you all next week for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night.